This video right here may be the most important video I make about anatomy and physiology. Why? The levels of organization that I'm going to share with you right here take you through the entire AMP course, the entire AMP everything. So with the levels of organization, what it is, most simplest way I can tell you is it's the levels of the body. So if you're playing a video game, there's level one, level two, level three, four, and eventually it's the end, okay? So in anatomy and physiology, this is your beginning and end of that game. The levels of organization starts down here and goes up here. So I'm gonna just break them down for you and have some pearls here for you to remember, okay? So here we go. You're gonna see throughout the course of this video series here on anatomy and physiology, we're gonna start with the atom, the smallest part, cells, tissues, organs, organ systems, the organism. Hey, that's us. So that's what we do. So the chemical level is the base level of the levels of organization, okay? So chemical, or some may call it the molecular level, okay? That's atoms, okay? We, go, we then move up from there to the cellular level. Well, it's in the, the name, at cells, okay? From there we go to the tissue level. Now, what's a pro I can give you to remember tissues? Well, it's right above cells, right? So for tissues, think it's a bunch of cells working together for a common goal, to complete a common function. That's tissues. They come together. Cells come together. Okay? They're not separate. They come together and make tissue. Okay? Then we have organs. So now it gets pretty, pretty easy here. Okay? We know this kind of stuff. Organs, think of the heart. and organ system, think of how the body can maintain someone's blood pressure. What is that part of the cardiovascular system? Right? Pretty cool, right? So we have blood vessels in that system. We have the heart. So the heart would be the organ, but the blood vessels, that entire system at play is the cardiovascular system, okay? Now the final piece here we have is the organism. That's us, the human. There it is. This is the levels of organization. I'll see you in the next video. exactly is homeostasis. Maybe you heard the word before, but you're maybe unsure what it means. There's some key terms here we got to know about when it comes to anatomy and physiology, when it comes to homeostasis, and it's one of the core things you have to know about. So here's homeostasis. Quite simply, it is the stable internal environment in the body. Now, that's the def definition of it, okay? So if you see it on a test, that's what it is, okay? Now let's talk about how this all works. So throughout the body, and you'll see the terms here, let's just do the terms first. Homeostatic regulation, okay, is the umbrella term that involves all this down here. Receptor, control center, effector, negative feedback. We're gonna talk about that. So let's start with the first one, okay? Homeostatic regulation. What that involves is the body's way of keeping itself in homeostasis using these principles down here, okay? Now here's the first principle. 
the receptor. So there are receptors in the body, all throughout the body, and they're placed, and we're going to talk about later on in this course, there are receptors placed throughout the body that react to a change in the body or a stimulus in the body acting on that receptor. It picks up on it and then passes that information to that receptor's control center. Okay? That control center then processes the information and then passes that on to the effector, okay? Which is gonna take, basically, take action on what's going on. Now where every student gets messed up with these terms is negative feedback. All it means is the body's automatic response to any changes with homeostasis. That's negative feedback. To take action when things go arise automatically through the system right here that we talked about, okay? Watch this video over again until you have it down cold and we're gonna move on to the next video. Hey everyone, welcome back. We're gonna talk about organ systems. We have to understand these, so when I say an organ system, you understand at a basic level where I'm going with it, okay? This is our intro phase, let's talk about it. So I wanna to introduce to you the organ systems in the body. The first system is the integumentary system. So what we're gonna talk about with that is that is our first barrier of defense against anything that might infiltrate our body. Okay, that's our skin system, all right? Now, you're probably wondering, Evan, you have all everything grouped up here in these weird groups. I'm, this is the mnemonic, the way I want you to remember it. So when they say, hey, can you label all the systems? You kn know a system in your head to get it down on paper, okay? Now, here's the next thing. We have skeletal and we have the muscular system. So skeletal is like the support system. We don't have any bones, we're just gonna fall on the floor. So the skeletal system is our support system. It keeps us where we are. Now, to get us into locomotion, to get us to be able to move and be active, we need the muscular system, okay? So, when you think about a human body, what do you think about? What's the first thing you think about? We need skin, we need bones, we need muscle. These three, these three systems go together. The, I call them the big three as far as organ systems. We, if we're gonna be a human, we gotta start with those three, okay? Now I wanna move over into what I call the three highway systems. Because if you see what they look like, they look like highways or pathways throughout the body. But they all do different things. So let's talk about it. So first is the nervous system. The nervous system is the first action, if you will, to any sort of stimulus in the body. Anything happens, good or bad, the nervous system is gonna take action on it. It's the response center for the body, okay? It regulates things. That's the nervous system, okay? We have obviously the central nervous system, right? Then we have other nervous systems we're gonna talk about. That's for later chapters, but I just wanna plant it in your head, okay? Now, here we have here is the cardiovascular system. That is basically the highway system in your body. It includes arteries. 
It includes veins, okay? It includes the heart, obviously. We're going to talk a lot about this system. It's very important inside of EMS. Now, the lymphatic system, ooh, you might have, what does that even do, okay? Maybe you're thinking that right now. What the lymphatic system does is has to do with preventing disease and stopping infection. So, I told you earlier our skin is our first barrier, but what if something happens to us? That's our immune, that's inside of the lymphatic system, okay? We're gonna talk about that. Now, remember, these three here are together because they, they're highways throughout the entire body. The nervous system, the brain, the spinal cord, the cardiovascular system, all the arteries and veins throughout our body. The lymphatic system is in a lot of different places in our body we're gonna talk about in later chapters. Something to think about there. These are the highway systems. These are the big three. <laughs> we don't have these, we're not a human. Right. Now let's talk about these. Respiratory and endocrine. Why are they together? Well, it's a drug called epinephrine. And when I think of epinephrine, well, epinephrine basically originates, its home is in the endocrine system. Okay, we think about the adrenals. Okay. Now, with respiratory, the first thing I think about is epinephrine. Because I think about an asthma attack patient or an anaphylaxis patient, they can't breathe. I think respiratory, I think beta 2 receptors, oh, what's all that stuff? We're gonna talk about it later on in chapters. But these two are together because it reminds me of the drug epinephrine. The respiratory system, we exchange air, oxygen, carbon dioxide. We're gonna talk about that and it involves in our body and our bloodstream but think about respiratory as the air system, okay? We oxygen, carbon dioxide going on. The endocrine system, that is a long-term regulation of hormones in your body. When people have messed up hormones, it's gotta do with the endocrine system. It's a lot of different hormones. We have thyroid, right? we have we talk about the adrenals, um, pituitary, penile. We're gonna talk about them in the different chapters. But we talk about glands, we talk about different hormones. It's probably the endocrine we're talking about. Let's talk about that later on, okay? The digestive system. Now, with the digestive system, I've paired it up with the urinary system. Why? Digestive, we think of eating. Urinary, we think of drinking, right? And then we have to get rid of that stuff eventually, right? Take the nutrients and put the stuff to waste. They are friends, okay? So, digestive. That's going to be the entire process of us bringing nutrients through the GI tract. Okay, the urinary system is about excreting waste, okay, getting out of our body. Now, the final piece is, well, this, what are we talking about here? We're talking about the human. Well, we're talking about humans. There's male and female reproductive systems in every single human, right? That's, where, that's the final piece is the reproductive systems. So if you're male on one side, female on the other side, two separate systems, of course, and that's what we have here, my friends. Pretty cool? Welcome, hope you enjoyed the organ systems. I'll see you in the next video. Good work. As we're moving on here, we're now getting into talking about the atom. The first thing we need to understand is the atomic structure. Now I've put some pearls, some notes here on the board, 
that you absolutely, when you do A&P, you're going to be tested on in class, guaranteed. So these notes are on the board here. We're gonna start with the basics, okay? There's, let's start with these three things. Inside the atom, which we know, okay, remember our organization video, is the smallest form, is our atom, right? At the molecular level, the chemical level, okay, is the atom. First, the charges. So protons are inside of the atom, inside the nucleus, and they are positive. So the P in protons, remember you're positive. Now electrons are the opposite of protons. So protons are positive, electrons gotta be negative. But you gotta remember there's one more thing inside that nucleus with the protons, and that is the neutrons, which are neutral, okay, a neutral charge. And represented by this little zero over here, okay? So, protons positive, neutrons neutral, okay? Electrons negative. Remember, these two are at odds with each other. That's how you remember it, okay? Start, start with protons, say, which ones are negative? Oh yeah, electrons, they're the ones that are against. And then throw in your neutrons as neutral, like a neutral army in the middle, okay? So here we go. Now here, over here, I've drawn, uh, an element for you, helium. You can see what it looks like. So here we go inside the nucleus here. We have PP and N, and then the electrons are out here. We're gonna talk about this shell, the electron cloud or shell over here, okay? Kind of like rings on a planet, okay? But we're talking about an atom here, okay? Now, here are the pearls that you gotta know. And we're gonna talk about the shells at the end, okay? Now, First pearl I got here is the number of protons. It's the first pearl. If you get asked, what does the number of protons represent? That's the atomic weight, okay? Number of protons, atomic weight, okay? Hey, well, what's the other thing I gotta remember? It's something else right here. What's the number represented by protons and neutrons? The mass number. So atomic weight, protons by itself. Atomic weight, protons by itself. Hey, what's a mass number? Well, a mass is like getting everything together. Well, we're getting everything inside the nucleus together, protons and neutrons, there it is, okay? So center of the atom is called the nucleus. We have that down. Now there's another pro I have for you here. You're gonna get asked, what holds the electrons? The electron shell out here. I think about it like Saturn, like the, pla like the planet Saturn. You have like the middle, the planet, and then the rings. That's the way I think, this is how I remember it, okay? Now, whoa, another pearl. Uh, isotopes. What is an isotope? An isotope, okay, let's say, here we go. Let's say I have, for example, let's say I have uh, carbon over here, okay? And then I have carbon over here, right? Or helium here and helium here, right? But there's something different. This is an isotope. What's different about this isotope? The number of neutrons, which makes the mass number different. That's it, okay? So that's how we get into all this. And here's the final piece. What's the deal with this electron shell? They're probably gonna get asked the following questions. Let's say you have an element, right? Now, I'll, I'll tell you one here, for example, right? Let's say you have the, an element, uh, neon, for example, right? So neon has 10 electrons, okay? If we're gonna place them 
the first ring in the electron shell can hold two electrons. The second ring can hold up to eight. So if I was gonna draw a neon, I would put two in the first ring, like helium has two in the first ring, and in the next ring, I'll put the other eight. Now I have my 10, and there it is. These are the pearls you gotta know when we're talking about the structure of the atom. See you in the next video. The first thing you have to know about chemical bonds is atoms that have the electron shell totally formed. Those are very, very stable. Now, if there are still spots remaining, meaning there's still electrons that can be moved around or placed in, that's unstable, but they make great pairs. So think about it. You're an atom out there and you're going around and you don't have your electronic shell fully formed with electrons. You're looking to partner up with somebody else. These are bonds. We're gonna cover ionic and covalent bonds, okay? So let's start with first, what are the different ions? The first is a cation, it's positive. Anion is negative. So you talk about ions, remember that. So positive and negative, the attraction links together. So here's the formation of an ionic bond. First, you have the formation. Hey, we're gonna, we're gonna link up, okay? Then from there, we have the attraction, okay? The formation starts with, for example, with sodium chloride, the sodium says, hey, here's an electron. Now you're, now you're good, okay? So now they're attracted with positive and negative forces, and then we have sodium chloride, okay? So there's an example for you. Another one here is magnesium sulfate, okay? So when ionic bonds, it's gonna be a, a switching of electrons to make it whole, okay? Now, with covalent bonds, it's different. So, ionic, we're giving up. Covalent, we're together, we're bonded together. That's a covalent bond. So, there's two very, just very simple, there's two types. If, if the two atoms are going to share an, ele an electron, right? They're gonna share a pair, the single pair, it's a single covalent bond. They're sharing pairs, one pair, sharing one pair of electrons. If it's a double share, meaning we're gonna go back and forth and we're gonna share two electrons, that's a double covalent bond. That's all it is. Single pair, single, double pair, double. There it is, okay? So the big key here is covalent shares, ionic gives it up. There it is. I wanna talk about inorganic versus organic compounds. This is very important when we're going through this section of A&P. Now, how do you tell the difference between organic compounds versus inorganic compounds, you know, compounds coming together. How do we tell the difference? We tell the difference very simply by this. Organic compounds right here, they're always going to include both carbon and hydrogen. Okay, they're gonna include both no matter what. Whereas an inorganic compound will not always have carbon and hydrogen. 
it will not have both of them. Okay, so important. So all you gotta remember is organic compounds always have both carbon and hydrogen. We're inorganic, that's not true. It's not true. They're gonna talk about acids, they're gonna talk about bases, they're gonna talk about pH, all that stuff. So what acids do is acids isolate and break down, release the hydrogen to stay positive and to be inside of that acid that gets formed, okay? What a base does is it basically eliminates the hydrogen from being positive. It eliminates it from the outcome of the base. So if you look here, I can ex I'll explain to you. So here's the acid, right? So here we have HCl, okay, hydrochloric acid. When it breaks, here it is, okay, H positive, and there it is, the chloride. You can see it here, okay? Now here's the base right here. Here we are, here's the base, and we can see it here. And look what happens over here. See it becomes negative, the H? So that's the biggest way that I remember it, okay? The base says, ah, I don't really care about the hydrogen. Now you're going to turn negative. Okay, you're not even going to be in the equation. Where in an acid, it says, yeah, you're going to stand alone on your own. You're going to be a part of this one. That's, a, that's your acids. Okay, pretty cool. Now down here, real simply, my friends, is your pH. So the pH goes from 0 to 14. Always remember that water is 7 on your pH scale. You know, hydrochloric acid, for example, is 1. Okay, it's a really, really bad acid. A lot of the household cleaners end up being bases, for example. Another thing to keep in mind, my friends. So we went over inorganic. Now what about organic compounds, right? Organic, yeah, I know four things. How many four things? There's lipids, there's carbohydrates, there's proteins, and nucleic acids. Yet that is how you remember what's an organic compound. Those are the main four you gotta know. A quick pearl I wanna give you about organic while we're here is many of them are soluble in water. That could also be a test question. See you in the next video. Inside this video right here, we're gonna start talking about the cell membrane. Very important topic, and you will get quizzed on it inside of AMP class, so let's prepare for that, okay? Now, there's two types of fluid. You have the extracellular fluid and the intracellular fluid. Okay, so it's very simple. There's fluid outside the cell, also known as the interstitial, okay? So also, then you have the fluid, we're gonna talk about what it is, in, inside the cell, intra. Now, here's what I want you to remember, okay? I've written a few things out, let's go through them. So first, what is the cell membrane? The cell membrane is the barrier, like the gate around the cell, if you will, okay? that keeps the extracellular fluid out of the cell and the intracellular fluid in the cell. Now here's a key point, the cytoplasm, okay? The cytoplasm is the contents inside the cell, okay? I'll say it again, the cytoplasm is the contents inside the cell, but what exactly is inside of the cell? Let's talk about that, because it's divided into two different things, okay? So here it is. The cytosol, okay, the cytosol is the liquid inside the cell, okay? Now over here, you have the organelles. So the organelles is the intra 
cellular structures, okay? Now these structures right over here can be non-membraneous or membraneous, okay? Meaning membrane, no membrane, okay? Now we're gonna talk about these structures in a second, okay, in the next video, but I, this is so key, you gotta understand this first. I'll see you in the next one. Membraneous organelles. Now remember, these organelles, like the non-membrane ones, they're all inside the cell, inside of that cytoplasm, okay? So let's talk about, we're gonna I'll go over all the notes here, we're gonna break all these down, okay? So let's start from the first one here, okay? Now this right here is the endoplasmic reticulum, ER. Now there's rough ER and smooth ER. You're gonna see a video here at some point talking about labeling. You're gonna to have to label a cell, uh, the entire membrane and everything inside of the cell and all that stuff, okay? Now, the easiest way to remember the rough or smooth ER is that the rough ER has ribosomes. The smooth ER doesn't, and it looks much different. It looks like little black dots on the diagram. So that's how you, the easiest way to remember that now. What does the endoplasmic reticulum actually do? Well, we talk about it here, okay? You see my little note about the rough and smooth. Now, it provides intracellular storage and transport. and also synthesizes proteins, lipids, and carbs. That's your ER, okay? So now I'm going to move down to the, the Golgi apparatus. Now, there's one thing to know about the Golgi apparatus. It forms lysosomes. So that's what you got to know about the Golgi apparatus, okay? You'll see that also on the video we talk about labeling. You're gonna have to do the labeling, so I'll get you ready for that too. Now here are the lysosomes. Now what do they do? The lysosome's job, put this in your brain, you're gonna have to listen to this video over and over to remember it. Lysosomes, what they do is they get rid of damaged organelles. Lysosomes get rid of damaged organelles. Okay, mitochondria, everyone knows, everyone in your family knows, it's the powerhouse of the cell, everyone talks about that. It's that, why? Because it has to do with ATP. It produces 95% of the ATP, the energy for the cell, okay? Now down here, uh, I need to show you this here. Nucleus and the nucleosis. Now, the bottom here, I'll start with the, the nucleosis. This is the one that synthesizes RNA. The nucleus has all the genetic material, okay? And it's basically the control center, controls the metabolism of the cell. Okay, so now we're gonna talk about non-membraneous organelles. Remember, organelles are inside the cell. The structure is inside the cell. Let's break them down. These are the non-membrane ones, okay? And here they are. So first is the cytoskeleton, okay? The cytoskeleton, I want you to think strength. I want you to think support. Like the skeleton in our body, the cell inside has a skeleton too. Okay, so what it does, it enables movement of structures to move around inside the cell, okay? Now here's the microvilli. This is gonna be very important when you're doing your labeling, and you'll see that video here when I talk about it. When you look at it, the cilia is very large, and then just to the side is the microvilli. The microvilli looks like a mini cilia, as it looks like. It's a little bit different stuff going on with it. We're gonna talk about it but it looks like a mini cilia. That's how I remember it. That's how you're gonna remember it, okay? 
So it's micro, so that's how I remember it, okay? The mini cilia, basically. So what it does is gonna facilitate the movement of stuff from the, the extracellular and that's how we move in and we can get in to the place where it's absorbed inside, okay? The cilia is gonna move materials from on, on the cell surface, okay, what it does. Ribosomes are gonna synthesize proteins. You're gonna to wanna to replay these videos over and over until you have it down cold, so I'll say it again. Ribosomes, think proteins. You're gonna get asked about that. It synthesizes proteins. Now finally, we have the proteasomes. These proteasomes, what they do is they break down any damaged intracellular proteins. That's the job of that last organelle. My friends, see you in the next video. Keep listening, great work. Diffusion is the movement of molecules from a higher concentration to a lower concentration, depicted right here. Higher concentration to a lower concentration. Okay, now here is some keynotes we're gonna go over on this. Now here's the first one, I'm gonna read it to you. How does the iron or molecule move into the intracellular? Okay, there's two, how many? There's two ways that happens. Number one, it moves across the lipid portion of the membrane. The second one is passing through the channel protein in that membrane. So there's two ways it does that right there, okay? Now here's the last piece. So if I was to define osmosis, here it is here, it's the diffusion of water across the membrane, as you can see right there, okay? Now here, let's talk about the three solutions, okay? Now I'm gonna get out of the way, I'm gonna step in here, okay? So let's say we have a red blood cell, okay? And we have that red blood cell and we put it in an isotonic solution. That means that everything is equal. Isotonic is another word for equal, okay? So the red blood cell stays the same, okay? It doesn't swell, it doesn't shrink. A hypotonic solution means there's more water in that solution. That's what that means, okay? As you can see here, there's a higher water concentration. With a hypertonic solution, there is a higher salt concentration. Higher salt concentration, hypertonic. So you're gonna get on your test. This is why I'm this is why I'm preaching all this. These are the buzzwords, like all these videos are, for your exams that you're gonna have on AMP. Isotonic, everything's equal. Hypertonic is when you're gonna see that red blood cell shrink up. Hypotonic, it's gonna, red blood cell's gonna swell up. There's what it is there. This is the first part we got more to talk about. Active transport and passive transport. You're gonna hear these buzzwords when you're taking anatomy and physiology in your class. Now, active transport requires ATP. Active has an A in it, ATP has an A in it. That's how you remember it, okay? ATP is the energy inside of the body. So active transport requires ATP, requires energy, okay? When you hear the word passive, what do you think of? There's no energy, it's, it's effortless, it's, it's easy. Passive, no ATP, no energy. Now on the board here, 
I'll back up here. I've put examples of active transport versus passive transport. This is also going to be on your exam. So you want to replay this video again so you know it cold. Now here it is. On this side, active transport, we have ion pumps, sodium potassium pump. Also, I want to bring it up, a little star here. Carrier-mediated transport can be passive and it can be active. So that's a weird one. It's in the middle. So remember that. Carrier-mediated transport can be yes ATP and no ATP. So it can be both. Okay. Now over in passive land, we have diffusion, osmosis, filtration, and yes, the carrier-mediated transport. Now, a single cell by itself cannot do every single job that needs to be done in the body. So cells have a job to do. So here's what they do. The cells, they all have a specialty, right? Like, you know, like a doctor has a specialty. So with the cells, when they're specialized, they come together to form tissues to get the job done that they need to get done, right? So that's tissue. So every cell is different and specialized cells come together to form tissues to get their job done. What exactly is the epithelial? You're gonna hear that. What is the epithelial? So this is a function of the epithelial in the body, okay? So first, provides protection. Two, controls permeability. Three, provides sensation. And here's the big one, four. We're talking about specialized secretions. So in the next video, we're going to talk about stuff about exocrine, endocrine. We're going to talk about that and how the epithelial and what that has to do with other glands, stuff like that. Now, here's what I want to tell you in this video right now is when we talk about specialized secretions, we're talking about gland cells. So this is my little intro here to our little section on tissues and the epithelial. Epithelial. So here it is. The epithelial are layers of cells that cover internal and external surfaces. For example, the GI tract, the respiratory tract, for example, okay? It's epithelial. Now, glands are made up of secreting cells, okay? So glands in the body, we talk about thyroid gland, right? Pituitary gland, right? We're going to talk about that later on in this AMP, okay? Now down here, when you go into class, they're going to talk about exocrine versus endocrine. What it has to do with is it has to do with secretions being released onto the epithelial itself. While down here at endocrine, that is when the secretions are released into the tissue fluid or blood. That's when we have hormones released from pancreas, pituitary, thyroid, to name a few. That's the major difference. It's going to come up. So I'll say it again. Exocrine, directly on the epithelial. Endocrine, nope, that's into the blood and the tissue fluid. There it is. Classes of the epithelial. You will get quizzed on this. Now here's the first part. We have simple for stratified. That's the first level. 
So we look at the epithelial. Is it simple or is it stratified? That's the first step. So simple is a single layer of cells. It's a very thin layer. So it's really only used in internal surfaces, for example, uh, blood vessels, not on the outside. Now outside epithelium, that's over here, it's stratified. So with stratified epithelium, there's several layers of cells. Think like in the mouth or the skin, so it's, it's more exposed, right? So inside, more exposed. Simple inside, thin layer. Stratified, several layers on the outside or a sensitive area. Of the epithelial, there's three subtypes you need to know. The first one here, we can see squamous, is thin and flat. The nucleus in the thickest part, okay? Now, the second piece right here is basically like a cube, but it's hexagon style. And the nucleus is found centered. The final piece is in column form. So the, the epithelial is shaped taller and more, and more slender. Actually, the epithelial is actually 2x'd of the actual size of the nucleus. So when you, look at a, when you look at a picture of it, you'll see that it's very easy. The column one is very tall and slender. The hexagon one, that's right in the middle. And then the one that's thin, flat, almost like a fried egg, that's right here, squamous. So each, these are the main parts. These are the subtypes. So there's simple squamous, simple cubed, simple column. Then there's stratified squamous, stratified cube, stratified column, depending on where it is in the body. And there it is. These are your classes of the epithelial. Welcome to the integumentary system, also known as the skin system, okay? That's the way that I remember it. Now, what we're going to talk about here is the baseline terms and definitions you need to know about this system. So let's start with that, then we're going to get a little more complex and break things down in future videos. So here we are. So this system, I want you to think of skin, hair, nails, and some glands. So I'll say it again, this system, think about skin, hair, nails, and some glands, what we're going to talk about, okay? Now we start with the cutaneous membrane, okay, the cutaneous layer, if you will, okay? Think that the skin, if I say what's cutaneous, the skin's cutaneous, what's subcutaneous, below the skin? So remember, in medicine, epi means above and sub means below. So check this out. This cutaneous membrane's layer is composed of the epidermis, which is composed of superficial epithelium. We talked about that. Remember that last chapter? Okay. Now, here's the next thing we're going to talk about here. The epidermis. Epi means above. That's how you remember it. Okay. The epidermis is our skin, essentially. Okay. The dermis is the underlying connective tissues. So that is the epidermis and the dermis. That is still comprised of the cutaneous membrane. Down here is subcutaneous layer. This subcutaneous layer is attached to the muscle and the bones. Now some people might say, oh, that's not really part of this system. It is because we have to have a connection point there, so I'm going to include it in this little series, okay? Now, down below is if you get asked, what are the accessory structures 
of this system, right here, hair, nails, and exocrine, exocrine glands. Not endocrine, different system, exocrine glands, okay? So these are the baseline things you gotta know about. Here they are, let's get a little more in depth. These are the basics. want to discuss the five functions of this system okay now the first is protection okay so remember the skin is our first layer of defense well, we have to defend our glands our organs inside our body that'd be nice and the second thing is we also it's that first line of defense against infection right we have intact skin okay now two is temperature maintenance. So what that means is the heat exchange between you, yourself, and the environment to keep the body at normal temperature. All right, now there's a few others on here to talk about. Three is the synthesis of nutrients and the storage of even some nutrients. So one that comes to mind is vitamin D3. Obviously people know we get that from the sun and it's absorbed through our skin. That's a big one, okay? Number four here, is sensory reception. So if you feel a pain, if you feel a pressure, that's the, the first thing that you're gonna notice in that system. The fifth thing here that we're gonna talk about is excretion and secretions. So we're gonna talk later on about the glands, but remember, there are glands in this system. We're gonna talk about them later, okay? Now look here, excretion, salt and water, secretions like glands that secrete breast milk in this system. So let's just break it down one more time. For your, my audio learners, listen to this. Protection, temperature maintenance, synthesis of nutrients, sensory reception, excretion and secretions. So now I wanna discuss the actual layers of the epidermis, okay? We're gonna break down in this video each section of the epidermis. Remember, the epidermis is the most superficial part of our skin, but the epidermis has several layers. It's not just one epidermis, it's layered, okay? Like a cake has layers, same with the epidermis. So let's talk about this first. If you hear the word strata, it, what it means is layers, okay? So when I say strata, whatever I'm gonna say, it's the name of a layer, okay? Now, the first thing we gotta know is there is a difference between thick skin and thin skin. Thick skin is found on the palms of our hands, at the bottom of our feet. Thin skin is everywhere else in our body, okay? So the skin is, if you even feel it yourself, your skin feels more thick in your hands and the bottoms of your feet. Sounds like a pretty good thing to have considering this touches everything and your feet touch the ground. So good, good design there, right? Now, if you look at the bottom here, this is the most bottom layer and this is the top layer, okay? So I have deepest, there's something called the, the intermediate layers and there's three of them only in thick skin, I'm gonna explain, and then superficial. So thick skin has five layers. Okay, thin skin has four layers. You can see here, this one right here, the stratum lucid, 
it actually is only found in thin skin, which means if I put my arm here, I don't know if it's going to work, you're going to kind of block a little bit, but this one right here would be removed right here, the stratum lucid for thin skin. So there's only four layers in thin skin, and there's five layers in thick skin. So I'm showing you all five here like it was in the th thick skin. Make sense? If it doesn't make sense, repeat this video over again two or three times till you have it. Okay? The thing is, I like to give things nicknames so you don't get so caught up in trying to uh, pronounce the word or get so caught up in trying to understand the word where instead you can remember what you need to remember to understand it. So, give it a nickname. If I think about the base level, I then think, well, I have to have a spine level. This looks like spine. Then you gotta remember here, the grand is right in the middle, okay? This is where all the keratin production is, okay? Now, what is keratin? Keratin helps things grow, like your hair and nails. That's very important, okay? Now, the stratum lucid. Well, you're lucid because it's not there if we're talking about thin skin. It's only there in thick skin. That's how you remember it, okay? And the stratum corn here, this top one, you just gotta know that that is the final piece. Now, most of the times, it'll give you a word bank on this. That's the way that I remember it. So hopefully that you can use those little tips and do your own mnemonic as well. But I hope that that was a good way for you to remember these new words. Pretty cool. See you in the next video. It's gonna be on the dermis layers. This video here is gonna break down the dermis layer. This is very simple. With the dermis, there's two layers, but I don't want you to forget this. Is the dermis part of the cutaneous or the subcutaneous? No, it is the cutaneous, okay? So remember, the epidermis, we talked about in a previous video, the dermis are part of the cutaneous, so we're not in the subcutaneous layer yet. Students get this tripped up, so don't forget. Dermis is still cutaneous. Now, there's two layers of the actual dermis. Okay, now here it is. We have first the papillary layer. This consists of capillaries, nerves, and supports the epidermis because it's the closest to it. Now, the, the more deeper layer, remember, this is it basically supports the epidermis. This is gonna connect the dermis, the reticular layer, is basically fibers that connect to the subcutaneous. How do we get from the cutaneous to the subcutaneous? This right here, this layer right here, okay? So those are your layers of the dermis. Let's talk about some more stuff in the subcutaneous in the next video. So now we're at the subcutaneous layer. The most important piece of the subcutaneous layer is that this layer connects essentially our skin system to our bones and muscle. If you just remember that, you're in a great spot. But let's talk about some extras, okay? I'm gonna read all this off for you, okay? Now, the nickname is the hypodermis. Hypo, below, so hypodermis, okay? Connects skin to bones, muscles, vessels are inside, some large vessels that can go through the subcutaneous, something to know about, okay? Now, there's a lot here about fat cells and sub-Q fat and all that. Let's talk about that, okay? So, 
subcutaneous fat, okay, could also be called adipose, okay, that might be another word you might hear, okay, when you are uh, a baby, when you're a very young baby, okay, you know they say baby fat and the kids, like, they look so fat, it basically protects them from kind of the rough activities they might encounter when they're young. Once you hit puberty, you start to lose that baby fat. So men will get in a different area than women will, okay? If you think of the areas of fat, a man versus a woman, that's how it gets spread out, essentially, throughout puberty, right? So men might be here on the neck, for example, right? Where a female might be on the hips, right, for an example, okay? Where that uh, sub-Q fat goes to, okay, where it lives, okay? Now the last piece here, just to remember, is when we think about the sub-Q, do think about fat cells, because that's part of it, but also remember that those fat cells are an energy reserve. There is one final piece I want to remind you about the sub-Q, is you could have a subcutaneous injection. So there may be medications that you could give sub-Q. Now in EMS, they're not very common. Um, they were years ago, like let's just say 15 years ago, um, they, they may have had sub-Q 15, 20 years ago, but now everything is basically into the muscle, IV, IO, different stuff like that. Um, but just know that in medicine, there are subcutaneous injections. It's sub-Q, I'll see you in the next video. beginning of this series we talked about glands and I said it's exocrine glands. Remember we're not talking about endocrine, totally different. Exocrine, totally different. So in this system there's two types of glands. There's oil glands and sweat glands. Okay now these oil glands secrete something called sebum which lubricates the hair and the skin to help inhibit bacteria from growing. Okay so that's the big thing about the oil glands, okay? Now here's the thing though. This, these glands right here, this also can be where acne is formed if somebody has a larger than normal gland, okay? So this is where acne is formed right here, okay, the oil glands. Now down here is, we talk about sweat glands. So sweat glands, there's two types. The type right here, which are on the armpits, the groin, and also near the nipples. Then secondly, the myocrine is more widespread throughout the body. So not much to talk about here, but pretty simple is the one with the A, remember armpits, that'll make you remember, okay, so we have the armpits, nipples, groin. Essentially these sweat glands, if someone has body odor, this is what it comes from. Okay, these sweat glands produces that odor. Okay, so that's another way to remember sweat glands, body odor. There it is. Welcome to our skeletal section. What we're gonna be talking about in this video is the five main functions of our skeletal system. Now, this is the cornerstone of understanding this topic. Now, here it is. So first we have support, okay? What I mean by support is the skeletal system is the framework of our entire body, okay? So it connects soft tissues. It's very, very important, okay? And organs as well. Now two is storage. Now what do I mean by storage? Well one, as a mineral reserve. We're talking about calcium. We're talking about phosphate ions, 
inside of body fluids. What's the second piece? Well, there's something called yellow marrow. A yellow marrow acts as an energy reserve of lipids. Okay, the body can use yellow marrow, energy. Now number three, you can see right here on the board, we talk about red blood cell production. That's red marrow. So blood think red, that's red marrow. Yellow marrow, that's lipids. Oh, that's like fats. That's yellow, right? Yeah, there it is. Okay, so the red marrow, that section when we talk about bones doing uh, red blood cell production, they can also produce white blood cells too. Okay, now why is that important? We obviously know red blood cells has to do with oxygen. Okay, now here's, I think, the most important piece. Okay, these are all important, but let's talk about protection. So the ribs protect the heart. The skull protects the brain. The vertebrae, which is another word for bones, that protect your spinal cord. Your pelvis protects your digestive system. And, okay, especially for the female patient as well, we talk about reproductive. Exactly. Now, the fifth piece is very simple. Every time I move, where I'm using leverage, movements, positions, it could be a powerful movement or a slight movement, it's your skeletal system. So these are your five right here. Now I'll go through them again for my audio listeners. Support, storage, blood, uh, blood cell production, red blood cells, white blood cells, protection, leverage. There it is. The structure of the bone. But at first, before we do that, I needed to find something so you understand these new medical terms. So the word bone is another word for osseous tissue, okay? So later on, we're gonna talk about intraosseous. In medical terms, that means into the bone, okay? Intraosseous. So you can see here, bone equals osseous tissue. So if I say, that man broke his osseous tissue. That man broke his bone, okay? Now over here, if I was to walk up to you and say, what is, what is bone made of? Well, about two thirds of bone is made of calcium. The other one third is made of something called collagen and other types, but the majority is collagen fibers, okay? So, if on a test question, what is bone made of? Calcium and a little bit of collagen, mostly calcium. Now, I got some some buzzwords over here, over here I want to talk about there's four types. How many types? There's four types. We're talking about types of bones in the body. First type is a long bone. So a long bone would be like a femur, would be like the humerus, okay? Hey, where's that happen? Well, femur, okay? Humerus is in your arm. Femur, okay, cool. All right, now, longer than wide is a long bone, okay? We said the humerus, femur. Short bones are equal in length and width. There's no difference. So that would be like the carpal bones and the tarsal bones, okay? So think about like your ankle, that section, okay? Very cool. Next here we have flat. So flat bones are thin. For example, we're talking about the parietal bone up in your skull, that's a thin bone. 
What about ribs? Another thin bone. Now the last piece here we're going to talk about is irregular. So these are complex bones that don't have any other place out there. If you tell me a complex bone, that's a vertebrae. So there it is, okay? The vertebrae in your spine is a complex bone which makes it an irregular type. Doesn't fit anywhere else, it's a vertebrae, okay? Here are some buzzwords I wanna go over. So another, if I say, what's bone marrow, okay? We talked earlier on, yellow marrow, red marrow. Bone marrow, what that simply is, is loose connective tissue inside the bone. That's it, okay? Now, if we look here, okay, we're talking about other different types, okay, of bone. Is it compact or is it spongy? Well, compact is solid, okay? Spongy has different spaces in between. That's it. So if you hear that buzzword, now you know what it is. So here it is here. These are your structures of the bones. I'll see you in the next video. Now, one thing that I wanna discuss is when we hear the term intraosseous, maybe you've heard of the word bone drill, maybe you heard of a IO needle or the IO drill. You're probably wondering, what, what? how does this work? How, does, how do we put fluids, how do we put medications into someone's bone and give them medications? This is very important. So the intraosseous, remember, what I, in the last video we talked about Osseous tissue is another word for bone. So intraosseous into the osseous, into the bone, that's the IO pathway. And IO is used only in emergency situations. So let's say you have a patient, they really need a medication badly because you cannot get an IV or there's no time to mess around and get an IV. Cardiac arrest is a great example, okay? Um, there are other situations, but that's the most common, cardiac arrest. Now, you can see here that large bones are very vascular. Now, there's three large bones we're gonna talk about. How many? Three. Okay, number one is gonna be the humerus, okay, up here, okay. Number two is the tibia, so down here, okay. And then number three is the sternum. Now, that's more military, uh, but in an emergency situation, you could use a sternum. Um, it's not really recommended at EMS. Usually at EMS, it's gonna be humerus, it's going to be tibia, okay, as your routes. Those are the large bones that can accept fluid. Now, here's how it works, I'm gonna show you though, so check this out. I'll try and zoom in here. Here's the IO needle that enters the bone, okay? Now, there's something called a medullary cavity, which is right here. Okay, so think of these little like little capillary networks in here, okay, that are collecting like the fluids. You can see here the medullary sinusoids. What they're gonna do is they're gonna collect that fluid, that medication, and bring it across the other veins, and bring it right here to the central venous channel, which is gonna bring it into central circulation, like an IV. Pretty cool. That's how the IO works. We're putting that needle right into that, right into that uh, bone marrow, which ends up being right here, into the medullary sinusoids. Right in there, that's how you do it. Right in the central circulation. See you in the next video. Cool video coming up.
here to talk about the actual skeletal injuries. So first we have sprains. So as you can see here, a sprain, what it is, is an overstretching, or if it gets really bad, a tear of a ligament, could be one or more ligaments that cause an injury, okay? Second piece here we're gonna talk about, you can see on the screen here, is a partial, is a partial dislocation. That is called sublimation, okay? Now, so what that is, is simply a partial dislocation. An actual dislocation is a complete dislocation of the bone from its joint capsule. Most people think about a shoulder dislocation, okay? Now, we talk about spinal trauma. That's where this partial dislocation comes in, a lot, okay? Now, a fracture is a breakdown of the bone structure, the integrity of the bone. Now, there's two, how many? Two pathways of fractures. One is you have a healthy bone, trauma comes in, okay? That could be a fracture. Now, the second piece, what if the bone is just weak by default? Could be cancer, could be osteoporosis, right? There's patients that are just walking around, they, they, there's no trauma, they, the bone breaks because the bone structure was just, it, it wasn't integral, it wasn't strong. So those are your two types of fractures. Now, we're gonna talk in the next video about the different the actual types and grades and everything like that. Uh, we're gonna bring up sprains, we're gonna bring up fractures. Stay tuned. There are three grades of sprains. A grade one sprain is a minor overstretching or a very minor uh, tear, okay? That's gonna be your grade one. Now you can see here, there is swelling, there is pain and tenderness, but the joint is stable. Key, when you cross over to grade two, the joint becomes to be unstable. Still intact, but unstable. Now, this is considered a, a moderate injury, so a moderate tear, significant tear, but the joint is unstable but intact. In grade three, the, it's not intact anymore. The joint is not intact anymore. There's severe pain and severe spasm in grade three. It's complete failure of the ligament that we're talking about. There it is. open or in a closed fracture. I didn't put it on the board, I'm just gonna tell you about it now. An open fracture is a fracture of skin, a closed fracture is, wow, there's some deformity maybe on the inside, okay? That's what we're gonna see. All this stuff is on x-ray, but it, it's gonna be in your AMP class, so we're gonna talk about it, okay? So fractures, how do they know this in the hospital? On an x-ray. So the green stick fracture, I'm just gonna go along with you guys here as we're going along, okay? For my audio people too. Green stick fracture is children. Okay, there's two, how many? Two, the green stick and the torus fracture, those are gonna be in children. So green stick children, one side is broke while the other side is bent. Now, Evan, why are there fractures only in children? These, this torus and this green stick fracture? Why is that? Because of the large cartilage that children have versus adults, okay? So the torus fracture isn't even a real fracture. It's a swelling of the bone 
with very little displacement of bone. It's not real, like a broken bone, it's just like it's swollen. It's a high level of cartilage. Remember we talked about earlier on, what is bone made of? We talked about that. We talked about the, the collagen fibers and the calcium. So that's the cartilage, okay? Transverse fracture goes along this way, okay, left to right, okay? Now we have here the oblique. It's almost, it can't really be vertical. It's close as it can get, like a side piece like this. You can see it coming across. That's the oblique. The spiral fracture is kind of like that. It's a twisting of the bone. So it's a spiral fracture, how it got twisted. Now I want to talk about two types of fractures that have multiple segments. One has free bone, one does not. So let's start with the one that does not have any free bone. It's the commuted fracture. So this has multiple bone fragments of the fracture, but there's no free bone. Now in this one, you can see down here, the segmental, that is the one that has the free bone, okay, segments. And then finally, you can see here, the last one is impacted. If you watch a lot of my videos, you know I talk about axial loading. Axial loading is when basically it's like a vertical force. Let's say you were a diver and you were diving into a pool and then your head went straight and down. That, that vertical force is axial loading. So what axial loading can cause is this kind of fracture right here. It's an impacted fracture. It's an axial loading event. There it is, folks. So what we're going to talk about now is the two major divisions in the skeletal system. You have the axial skeleton and the appendicular side as well. That is very important. Now here it is. The axial skeleton is made of the skull, thoracic cage, and also that vertebrae, that column, which is basically our, our spinal column, okay? Remember, bone equals vertebrae. Remember that, okay? Now, skull has 22 bones in it. The hyoid bone is outside of that. A few other accessory bones, okay? You'll see that coming up, okay? There it is. The thoracic cage. Now, what does that entail? That's gonna be your ribs. Sternum, okay, as well. Now, what's the vertebral column? That's your, it's gonna be the, the bones of the spine, okay? Now, down here, the, the appendicular skeleton, what that is, is everything else, obviously. So your upper limbs, your lower limbs, your pelvis, and there it is, folks. Okay, so this is, right here, you can see it, these are our two main divisions you gotta know about. The next video you're gonna see here on the skeletal system is going to be a series of different worksheets to help you start to label this stuff. Now hear me out here. You go into A&P class, you watch the entire course. Okay, you watch it back twice, take notes on it, before you go into A&P, okay? Whether it's EMT or paramedic. Wow, are you gonna be way ahead especially with these worksheets, because you're gonna have these little worksheets on quizzes, stuff like that. So you do it now, you're gonna be way ahead. And if you're in class right now, speed up. I'll see you in the next video. Okay, so I wanna welcome you to the next section here. We're talking about the muscular system. Now there's three types of muscle in the body. There's skeletal muscle. We're starting with skeletal first. Later in other videos, we're gonna talk about cardiac muscle and smooth muscle. There's three types of muscle in our body. We're starting with skeletal muscle. 
So here it is. Now, skeletal muscle, I have a few things we're going to talk about. So first, let's talk about well, how many skeletal muscles are there in the body, actually. There's 700, remember this number for your, you know, buzzword for your test, 700 skeletal muscles throughout your body. Okay, now, next piece we're going to talk about. What does a skeletal muscle do? Well, it provides us with protection, okay? So it's supporting us to maintain our posture, right? It's guarding our organs, right? It's part of the skeletal muscle is the uh, muscle that's attached to our bones, connective tissues, all that stuff, right? So this is all skeletal muscle, right? And my arms here, just to give you an idea, okay? So we talk about here how we move, maintain posture, temperature, guard and support our body, okay? Now, here's the big pearl, and I'm, I'm gonna show you on here. I'm gonna try to zoom in here for you, okay? There's three layers to the skeletal muscle. How many? Three layers, okay, three layers to the skeletal muscle. The first one here, okay, is the epimysium, okay? The epimysium here is on the outside, okay? So this is the outer layer, okay, the epimysium, okay? Now the paramysium, you can see here, the paramysium, the way it's broken up, okay, we have the outside of the muscle. This is your muscle right here. Pretend this is a screenshot of my arm muscle right here. If I cut it open, and I go like this, and I cut it open, you'd see this, right? So the inner layer, right, the next layer in, this whole entire piece right here is the paramysium, right here, okay? Now, this is very important, okay? And this is where people get confused. I don't want you to get confused, so hang on here. Inside the paramysium, which is the next layer underneath the epimysium, so epimysium outside, the paramysium is the next layer down. Inside that realm, which is right there, I want you to think about individual bundles of cells, okay? So inside the paramysium, there are individual bundles, like bundles of hay, okay? Like little bundles of muscle, and it's muscle fascioles, okay? Those muscle fascioles are the little bundles. If I then, if I gave you a muscle fascio and took it out, inside each little circle here is the muscle fascial. These little dots that you see on the screen here, that is the endomysium, okay? Now, new topic, might sound crazy, replay this so you have it down cold. These are three layers, epimysium, paramysium, endomysium. Remember, these are all wrapped up like hay with the muscle fascioles inside of the paramysium. There it is. Now I want to talk about cardiac muscle tissue. I'm going to start with a buzzword here. It's relatively small and also has a single centrally located nucleus. You hear that in a test, cardiac muscle tissue. Now, right here, it's found only in the heart. That goes by the name. You probably knew that already, but check this out. Now, the actual contraction of the cardiac muscle. Now, the actual contraction of the cardiac muscle is through a process called automaticity. Now, that is controlled by pacemaker cells, and that is unique and what differs cardiac muscle from skeletal muscle that does not have that. This does. 
with these specialized pacemaker cells. Now, it's an aerobic metabolism. There's a question for you right there. There's an answer for you right there. Now, what does it mean for a muscle to get into tetany? Tetanitis is a pure contraction of the muscle, okay? And it stays like that. We don't want that, okay? Now, the heart muscle, thankfully, it cannot get into a tetany where it would just contract because then your heart wouldn't be able to pump any blood, okay? So that is good. Now, the last piece here, just oh, no, again, another possible question you might get. I put some notes together here for you on cardiac muscle is this. It is 10 times longer the contraction of the cardiac muscle tissue than skeletal muscle. Skeletal muscle is faster. Some quick tips here, now you know it. So now we're gonna talk about some quick tips with smooth muscle tissue. Now, like the cardiac muscle tissue, it also has a single nucleus centrally located, something to pick up on a question, but what else? Well, if here's a big thing, smooth muscle lines the majority of our organs. So we talk about digestive, blood vessels, lungs, smooth muscle. So you can see here, those are the big ones. Now, it's two pearls I wanna talk about. So the first pearl we're gonna talk about is this right here, smooth muscle, actually contracts the longest. Okay, has the longest time of contraction, okay? Okay, it has to move things along. Speaking of moving things along, you're gonna see probably on a test or just in, in general, something called a sphincter. Now what that is, is a basically a gather, if you will, of smooth muscle that moves things along and regulates the flow. So for example, there are sphincters inside the digestive system that will stop flow that will move flow. Something to keep in mind, this is smooth muscle. Okay, so let's talk about skeletal muscle fibers. First is fast versus slow. So fast muscle fibers, they deteriorate faster. They get tired and fatigue faster, okay? Now, the pearl here, the majority of fibers are indeed fast, okay? And the fast fibers, they use a lot of ATP very fast, which is why they fatigue so fast. Think about, like, think about the muscle fiber, just swung it up pole, right? Now, slow fibers are less fast to fatigue. And I'll give you some more pearls here. Slow fibers have more O2 supply and a large capillary network and they have more mitochondria. This, put it all together, think about a sprinter versus a marathoner, right? Fast versus slow, and what they're using when they're actually doing that activity. Now, I wanna talk about, I have a story for you, but I wanna talk about white versus red first. White muscles is where the fast fibers live, okay? They're kind of pale in color, Red muscles is where the slow fibers live, okay? Now, you're probably wondering, well, how, how do I make sense of all this? So let me explain, okay? Now, a chicken flaps its wings when it has to fly, okay? So it's using anaerobic activity, 
Okay, it's a fast twitch. Okay. Now, when the chicken just walks around, it's using slow twitch. Okay, it can walk for a long time. But when it's got to get in the air quick, it's got to go move fast. So that's why that we have white meat and the chicken versus dark meat and the chicken. You with me? Now, what about humans? Well, our muscles are basically all pink because it's not one or the other, it's a mixture. So with humans, I put up top here. How do we, how is, how is your muscle composition determined? It's first by genetics. You have, you have fast, slow, you could have less of more, more of more, whatever it is. Okay, hope you enjoyed that little one. And athletics is where you can actually do the, the best of your potential to improve on your fast and your slow fibers. There it is. All right, so now I want to talk about anaerobic versus aerobic endurance. This is a key part of your muscular system. Now, what we're talking about here with anaerobic is, very simply, and I'll read it out to you, the length of time contractions, muscle contractions, are supported by energy reserves such as ATP. Now, what does that mean? Again, that is like someone who is sprinting. That's like someone who is doing a fast movement, like weightlifting. That's anaerobic. So what happens is it requires a lot of ATP, and then it burns out. Okay, so that's anaerobic. When the time contraction support by energy reserves such as ATP. So you have this level of endurance so your ATP runs out. Okay, over here with the aerobic endurance is a length of time a muscle can continue, and I circled here for you, contracting while being supported by the breakdown of carbs, lipids, amino acids, okay? Different, totally different system. So ATP, carbs, lipids, amino acids, think mitochondria. There it is. So now I want to talk about a few clinical cases you may see that involve the skeletal muscle, okay? So here they are. Now let's go through each one step by step. You may have heard these words before, but you might not know what it is. You can't not know what it is, especially if your patient presents like this. Let's talk about signs, symptoms, and all that stuff. So here it is. So here's rigor mortis. Rigor mortis Usually, it's not a rule, depending on the temperature in the room where the body is. But if someone passes away, they go into cardiac arrest, they, they die, okay? Usually about six hours later, they develop rigor mortis. This is why. If you go to a patient, rigor mortis is a sign of their dead on arrival, okay, a DOA, okay? So around six hours after death, you can see the reason what happens is the muscle, let's say here's my skeletal muscles here, okay? All the glucose, ATP, energy gets completely depleted. So what happens is the muscle just goes ahead and tenses it up and in full contraction, okay? It's a sustained contraction for about 12 to 24 hours. And then eventually it will, it will relax. But by that point, the body is, you know, clearly a dead on arrival, if that makes sense, okay? Now, next we have here is the muscular dystrophy. 
You've probably heard that word before. What is it? Well, here it is. Okay. It's an, abnorm it's an abnormality of that patient's gene that messes with the proteins inside of the muscle. Okay. Now, it's very progressive and it will lead to later and later and later in life continuing on to getting more progressive with the disease and muscle weakness. Now, what's an autoimmune disease in this category of skeletal muscle? Well, this is right here, okay? Myasthenias gravis, okay? Also known as MG, some people too, okay? Now, here it is. It's an autoimmune disease. It causes weakness and fatigue, okay? What they commonly do will have a patient uh, in the, in the, you know, not in the labs, but in the doctor's office, when they go to the doctor, they'll do a chew test to see if them how strong their muscles are. So the final piece is rhabdomyolysis, also known as rhabdo. Now, what is that? That can be an unconscious patient or a conscious patient who is basically, they're immobilized. They're unable to move. Maybe they're pinned, for example, under a car or a fall and they're underneath something. There's some force being applied to the skeletal muscle, which is causing it to break down and, be, and really be destroyed, breaking everything down. Now, if you look here, it has to do with prolonged time of that immobility, okay? If you're on the floor and you can't move for a long time, that could be it. If you're pinned under a car, it's the same thing because you can't move, same thing, okay? So you don't have to be pinned, but you are immobile. You cannot move for whatever reason. Now, the key here is electrolytes get released. That can cause a lot of problems. My medics, you know, EKG, you'll see that. Dark red urine and... Kidney failure is the big thing with rhabdo. So these are our four things that has to do with what we're going to be learning about the skeletal muscle. Now, these are the four things that we need to understand with skeletal muscle. See you in the next video. Now, there are many ways to help you understand this material. But if we can understand how the nervous system actually works while we're defining what these are, we're gonna remember it. So let's start from the start, okay? There is a central nervous system and a peripheral nervous system. So I want you to think of the central nervous system as the brain and the spinal cord, which it is, and the main place that processes information. I want you to think of the peripheral nervous system as two parts. Part one, the peripheral nervous system gets information from receptors and then passes that off to the central nervous system to take action on it. Hang with me, okay? Then once the information is processed in the central nervous system, it then passes commands back to the peripheral nervous system to take action. Let me explain. Now, here it is. So we start here. Now, we're, we're going to go through this whole journey, okay? This piece right here is a peripheral nervous system. This is a central nervous system. This left piece right here are the receptors in the body. Over here is what we call effectors what gets affected by the commands that the peripheral nervous system is taking action on, okay? Now hang with me, here it is. We start receptors. 
there's two types of receptors, two categories of receptors we're going to talk about. How many? Two. So here we have the somatic receptors. The somatic receptors, what this has to do with is your position in the world with your body and what impacts you from the outside. Okay? The visceral receptors is what's going on inside your organs, inside your body. So think the somatic receptors are regulating what's going on in the world around you, while the visceral receptors are inside your body, what's going on internally. Now, whether the somatic gets a hit, gets a piece of information, or the visceral receptors have an important piece of information, they pass it on to the peripheral nervous system, which is going to do what? It's going to take that sensory information and it gathers it, but it doesn't process it. It's got to pass it off. Now, there's two divisions, two parts of the peripheral nervous system, right? You could think about it as this is the part, the afferent division, gets the sensory info from the receptors, but it needs to pass it off to the smart people, the central nervous system. They process the information, okay? So that's the afferent division over here, okay? Now, when it passes it through to the central nervous system, that's the brain spinal cord. That's the smart people, okay, in the body, all right? So the CNS processes the info, but it can't take action. It uses the efferent division of the peripheral nervous system to take action. And then there are pieces, there are subdivisions of the peripheral nervous system on the efferent division side, okay? This is one division, there's another division. Just to make it clear for you, I'm gonna go like this, okay? We're going like this, okay? We're the receptor gets a hit, pass it to the afferent division of the PNS, that's sensory info, that sensory info is past the CNS, where the smart people go ahead and process the info, and it's passed off to the efferent division, which has to do with motor commands. The CNS, do this. But the CNS isn't gonna do it, the PNS is. Now, there are two types of subdivisions in the peripheral nervous system. You're gonna see the somatic nervous system and the autonomic nervous system. Okay, the somatic nervous system, there it is. That's it, no more di divisions, no more dividing. But the autonomic in its little subdivision breaks off again into the sympathetic and the parasympathetic divisions, okay? Sympathetic, fight or flight, parasympathetic, rest and digest. Okay, now hang on here. If this command is going to the somatic nervous system, it's going to affect our skeletal muscle, okay? If the command from the CNS that gets passed off to the efferent division of the PNS is on the autonomic side. Well, the question is, is it a sympathetic action or a parasympathetic action? It can only be one of the, which one is it? And what does that affect? It affects your smooth muscle, could be a cardiac muscle, could be a gland, it could be adipose tissue, okay?
And this is the breakdown. Now, there's a lot of information here, okay? This is the best way to memorize it, not just by terms, by understanding how it works. So I'm just gonna do it for you one more time, just so you have an idea. We have outside receptors, we have inside receptors. We have somatic, outside, visceral, inside. When the receptors get a, a piece of information, when they get a hit, they pass it off to the PNS. This afferent division gathers sensory info from the receptors. But we need someone smarter than the peripheral nervous system, so we pass it off to the CNS. That's the brain spinal cord. They process the information. Once the info is processed, the CNS says, okay, who am, I give, who am I giving the command to? Am I giving the command to somatic or am I giving the command to autonomic? Okay, this is the efferent division of the peripheral nervous system. Okay, this is about motor commands, commanding you to do this. Skeletal muscle goes with somatic, smooth muscle, cardiac muscle, glands, adipose, goes with autonomic. Is it fight or flight response? Is it rest or digest response? There it is. So now that we understand the actual system in the first video, now I wanna talk about the most basic unit of this system, which is the neuron, okay? So I'll say it again. The neurons are the basic unit of the nervous system. That is going to be a test question, no doubt, okay? Now, I've talked about this. What does a neuron look like? Later on, we're gonna talk about different shapes of the neuron, okay? These are all gonna be test questions, guaranteed. Now, here's an important one. Now, I'm gonna read these out, okay? So, this is what a neuron looks like, okay? Now I'm gonna show you here what we got going on. Okay, so here are the components of a neuron in the nervous system. First we have the cell body, which is right here, the cell body. This entire piece is the cell body, okay? This piece going off over here is called the axon, okay? So what the axon's gonna do is the start of any outgoing activity for this neuron, okay? Now the first piece, the dendrites, are these little pieces right here sticking out of the cell body. Okay, you can see. See them coming out here? So the dendrites are gonna take in information while the axon is the start of the out information. Okay, now, very important. The synaptic terminals all the way down here, okay, all the way at the end here, is the final stop for that outgoing information outside the neuron. So if I'm a neuron, I would have these little pieces coming out of me called dendrites. And dendrites, what they do is, that's incoming information coming into my cell body, okay? Then when I, I gotta, okay, well I gotta go out now, right? I'm gonna move it down the axon and then move into the synaptic terminals. There it is, okay? Now, there are a few other things in here that are not labeled, but this is the main piece. You, for example, you have mitochondria in here, you have the nucleosis right there inside of our nucleus, you have all that. 
but I just want to give you the main points here. You gotta know this to understand how the neuron flows. There it is. Okay, so now we're gonna talk about classifying neurons. So there's three types of neurons and the way they're shaped, and the way they look. Okay, so the first type is the multipolar neuron. So we can see here, here's the cell body, you can see everything here, the axon going across, you can see that, you can see the dendrites here, and the movement, kind of like our classic neuron we saw in the last video, that's how it is. Um, these are most common in the CNS, and also uh, skeletal motor neurons as well, okay? Now the most popular one in the PNS, the peripheral nervous system, okay, is unipolar neurons where we go straight through the axon to, all, to the terminals. And what, what actually happens is it goes straight through. Um, the cell body is kind of lumped up to the side and the impulse goes straight through the dendrites, shoop, all the way through to the terminals. Okay, now the bipolar neuron is a little different. You can see it goes straight through. So you have your uh, dendrites over here, through the cell body, and then we have our terminal on that side. So these are sight, smell, these are specialized uh, neurons that you'll see. You're not gonna see many of them in the body. Um, it's the bipolar neuron. So what is the key to remember here? Multipolar CNS skeletal muscle, kind of like a classic neuron. In the peripheral nervous system, unipolar, goes straight across, most common. Bipolar, a little specialized. That's going to be sight, smell, stuff like that. There it is. All right, so talking more about neurons, here's what we have next. We're gonna talk about the different types here. Now, I've broken this up between the peripheral nervous system and central nervous system. We're gonna start with the peripheral nervous system. So on one side we have our sensory. Remember the sensory is the afferent division. The motor side is the afferent division, okay? So you can see here, we have somatic sensory receptors right here that are broken up into two types. There's external receptors, it has to do with touch, temperature, for example. Then proprioceptors has to do with our physical position in the world and our joints and our skeletal muscle, okay? Now, visceral receptors, that's the second piece here, visceral receptors has to do with the internal, like the digestive system, cardiovascular, reproductive, urinary, respiratory systems, okay? The somatic, it's the outside, remember, smacks the outside, but it's broken up into two types, external, touch temperature, proprioceptors, position of our skeletal muscle or joints, visceral receptors are inside all of our organ systems, okay? Now the motor side, we have somatic motor neurons that, that take the action. That's somatic S, skeletal S, they go together. Visceral motor neurons, remember, it has to do with the autonomic nervous system. Is it sympathetic? Is it parasympathetic? We'll have a video on that coming up. And then you can see down here, cardiac muscle, smooth muscle, adipose tissue, glands. That's what it affects. Now, 
You may be asking yourself, what's an interneuron? One interneuron is only found inside of the central nervous system. Different system. Central nervous system has to do with the brain spinal cord. So interneurons are used. They're associated neurons that bring neurons together to solve big tasks like high functions, like memory. Okay, there it is. Okay, here's our final video of the nervous system chapter. It is sympathetic versus parasympathetic, talking about that autonomic nervous system that is part of the peripheral nervous system's efferent division. You got it all? Here it is. Now, sympathetic. Now, I'm gonna go through these. I'm gonna, we're gonna point them out. But I first wanna talk to you first. So the way that I think about the sympathetic nervous system is the sympathetic nervous system is like a man on cocaine. And the parasympathetic nervous system is like a man on opiates. You're gonna see a very similar reaction when you see someone on cocaine when, and when you see somebody on opiates, it's kind of like how the body acts when the sympathetic's turned on and the parasympathetic's turned on. So just some general rules here. The sympathetic nervous system is a fight or flight response that we have when we need to get moving, we need to get going. If you're being chased by a tiger, you're gonna need to have your lungs open. You're gonna need to have your pupils open, your heart rate and blood pressure need to open up. You need to be able to move blood faster, right? And we need to shut off our digestive and urinary systems. We're on the other side in parasympathetic. A lot of people talk about it like a after sex response. Oh, I'm so relaxed right now, okay? That is the parasympathetic, right? Talk about opiates, oh, I'm so relaxed right now. There it is. Now let's talk about it in depth. The eye, sympathetic, dilated pupils, so I can see better. Parasympathetic, constricted, because we're just hanging out. What are we worried about? Cardiovascular, we have vasoconstriction, which causes that blood pressure to increase, okay? The heart rate goes up, and the contractility, aka the force of contractions, goes up as well. Heart rate and BP simp simply go down in parasympathetic. That's it, okay? Respirations, why do we give meds that innervate and turn on the beta receptors, like the beta 2? We get a sympathetic response. It opens up the lungs. That's a bronchodilator. Well, when the sympathetic nervous system is turned on, our lungs dilate because we got to move. Makes sense. There's a decreasing of a diameter of the lungs. They're not wide open when we have parasympathetic. They're more relaxed. Not closing like you're having an asthma attack, just not wide open like I'm going for a run. Okay. Digestive and urinary is pretty straightforward, but we'll talk about it. So think about it. If you are being chased by a tiger, do you need to be producing urine? Nope. Do you need to be moving your bowels? Nope, you got bigger things to worry about, like taking care of all this stuff, okay? So that's what happens here. And, and a point I have here too, about the bladder, is the bladder relaxes. When the bladder gets contracted or tenses, that's when we actually go you know, use the bathroom. So urine production is increased on parasympathetic, the bladder is tensed, and we increase our movement of our bowels. There it is, folks. This is sympathetic and parasympathetic. Watch this video a few times, and believe me, you will remember this for the rest of your life, 
not just for the test. There it is. Okay, right now we're going to talk about the major brain sections. We're going to start with the cerebrum. Now, the cerebrum is the largest division of the brain. It deals with intellectual thoughts. Okay, so thought, intellectual, and right here we have it deals with at sensory somatic info. So sensory info from the outside world coming into the brain. That's a cerebrum. Now the dicephalon, that deals with conscious, unconscious, sensory motor commands. So remember we talked about how we know the brain is part of the CNS. The CNS has a processing information, but then it says command do this. There it is. Here's the motor commands section, okay? Now the midbrain here is going to process our visual and auditory sensations, okay? Straightforward, visual and audio is our sound. The pawns. Now the pawns, part of it deals with our involuntary breathing. So, you know, we know how that process works. We all breathe. Now over here, a big point about the pawns. The pawns actually connects the cerebellum, okay? It's very important with everything else. So remember that, okay? Very important. Now the medulla oblongata. The medulla oblongata connects the brain and the spinal cord and acts the track of information between, that's where the track lies, from the brain spinal cord to talk to each other and those tracks go through the medulla oblongata. Also, you can see here, it deals with sensory and motor function with the cranial nerves. Cranial nerve right here, you can see eight through 12 on the cranial nerves, and we'll have a worksheet on that later on, okay? Now right here, we have the cerebellum. The cerebellum is your autonomic center and deals with balance and fine movement, okay? Now, what is ataxia? You probably heard another buzzword. Oh, I've heard of ataxia, but what is it? Well, here it is. Ataxia, what it is, is a state where you are basically out of balance. The most common way to be ataxic is by taking drugs and alcohol that gets you off balance and that disturbs your cerebellum so you're off balance. There it is. So now we're going to talk about the meninges. Now everyone hears this word, the meninges, but no one really knows what it is. No more. Uh, in this video, I'm going to break down the layers of the brain and spinal cord. Now here it is. I'm going to step in real quick, just to say one thing, and we're going to go into the layers. The brain and spinal cord need to be protected from, you know, shock, from trauma, okay? So this is why there's so many layers that protect it, okay? We've heard other buzzwords about epidural bleeds and subdural bleeds and subarachnoid hemorrhage, what, all that. We're going to talk about it and you're going to understand it, okay? Now here it is, okay? So on this side, I have the brain layers. This side, I have the spinal cord, okay? So we're going to start from the start, okay? Now the cranium, remember, the skeletal system, one of its functions is to protect. So the cranium, the skull, protects the brain. But inside of that, there's layer, other layers to protect the brain because it's so important. Now, 
The cranium, the first layer is the dura matter. There's three layers, if you will, of the dura matter. There's an outer layer, there's the main dural, and the dura matter. So outer, the main dural, then the dural matter uh, inner. Okay, so one, two, three. Okay, now, what is the epidural space? Well, the epidural space is a space between the outer dura matter and the cranium. So there's bleeding on the outside of that dura matter and the cranium is bleeding in there. That's an epidural bleed right here, okay? So that blood's touching the skull, okay? Now we go roll down here. Underneath the dura matter inner is the subdural space, okay? So that's where the subdural bleed is. Sub means below, like a submarine is under the water, okay? So subdural space, okay? This have the bleed underneath this dura matter, that's the subdural space, okay? Now here's the arachnoids here. We have the subarachnoid space right here, okay, as we go on, right? That's where a subarachnoid hemorrhage is, right there. This is pretty, pretty deep in the layers here. The pia matter is right here. And then right on the side of that pia matter is a cerebral cortex, AKA at the brain, okay? So those are the layers. So look at all this, uh, the way it's designed. You know, someone would have to get through with all these layers to shock the brain or to touch the brain. If we have bleeding in here, this is really bad obviously because it can pull up a lot of blood and you, you know, it wouldn't be a good outcome, okay? Now, we talked about earlier, when I say vertebrae, I mean bone. Well, if cranium's bone, we know that vertebra is bone, the bone that protects the spinal cord. So we have the vertebra, then we have the epidural space, we have the dura mater, the arachnoid, it's a little more simple on the spinal cord side, the subarachnoid, pia mater, spinal cord, okay? This is a good function to remember when you have a patient with an epidural bleed, a subdural bleed, a subarachnoid hemorrhage. Now you actually understand it, not just saying, oh, they're bleeding in their brain. There it is. So now we're going to talk about nervous system infections. Now, the first one we're going to talk about here is meningitis. Now, I just want you to know something. You may have heard about acute versus chronic infections. And depending on what it is, they can be acute infections or chronic. Chronic means it lasts longer than three months. Acute means it just happened now, okay? Just want to give you that quick tip. Now, here's meningitis. Now, remember, anything that ends in that itis, Okay, what does that mean? Well, it means that it's an inflammation or infection of what we're talking about. We just learned the last video about the meninges. Those little layers that are right in front of the brain, right in front of the spinal cord that protect it. When they get inflamed, infected, you have meningitis. When you have meningitis, you present with fever, with headache, with Photophobia. What's photophobia? Phobia. Well, photophobia, it's a handful to say, is you cannot look into light. It, it, it doesn't, it, you, it's so uh, bothersome uh, for you to look into the light. Think about somebody with a bad migraine. They have photophobia too. So we talk about fever, headache, photophobia. 
alter mental status is another one. Now here's two big things I want to talk about uh, down here with the signs, okay? Uh, one more that I sh probably should add is the most uh, common one. You probably knew it already. Meningitis, stiff neck. They have a very stiff neck. So there's two signs that I want to discuss. Now these signs are present, you'll see them in about 50% of the patients with meningitis, okay? Now here it is. We have Brzezinski sign, which is a passive flexion of the neck of the patient will cause the patient to have flexed hips and knees. So if we passively flex the neck of the patient, okay, then what, what's going to happen? We get a flexion of the hips and knees. Okay, that's, a, that's a sign, number one. Number two, down here, our second sign is the patient cannot extend their legs when their knees are flexed, okay? So these two signs, you'll go to see them on a test, okay? Whether EMT or a medic, it's right here. Those happen in about 50% of the meningitis patients. There it is. Okay, so now we're gonna learn about another common buzzword that you may have heard about. What is encephalitis? What is it? Encephalitis is inflammation of your brain. That's it, okay? So the brain's inflamed. Well, that's not good. Well, how does it happen? What happens is your patient could be altered, they're gonna have a headache, okay? This is a big part of the patient's history. So had they traveled somewhere, right? So we talk about mosquitoes. So mosquitoes can transmit this to humans. Now there's other things here. Do they have rabies actively? Do they have mono actively? Are they an AIDS patient actively? Um, these are the big pearls with knowing about this disease, this infection. Now you know about it. There it is. Our next nervous system infection, it's a pretty simple one, our brain abscesses. Again, you've heard it, now let's understand what it is. So a brain abscess is simply an accumulation of pus on inside the tissues of the brain and spinal cord. That's, what, that's all it is. Now how does this even happen? Well, here's the thing. If you have a nasal infection or an ear infection that gets out of hand, it can lead to that. Okay. The second piece is trauma, okay, which is why this is most common actually in people that are 30 to 40 years old. I guess a lot of trauma happens around then, maybe work accidents, stuff like that. And the other thing that we have too here is we have surgery. So if you have a surgery being done, obviously that, could, that can cause it as well. Now, the last piece is uh, HIV patients. There's a particular uh, form of bacteria that can cause this for HIV patients. Just something to know about. You might see it out in the field, could be a transfer, now you know about it. This is brain abscess. Okay, now there are three types of headache that we need to know about. Now, the first one, this is the one with the aura. The aura is a migraine, okay? So a migraine, you can see here, it usually starts in the early teens. And there's usually, and it changes from patient to patient. Um, when they have this aura, 
It could be a smell. It could be a taste. Um, it could be a visual stimulus. So, for example, it could be like uh, they see lights flashing in their eyes. It also could be blurry vision. Is the aura is the sensation they feel before the event starts, the migraine starts. Now, what causes the migraine? Some sort of external factor, something going on in the world around them. This can be so many different things can cause a migraine. So every patient has their own external factor and they'll know, they'll tell you, oh, well, this happened, it's probably this, a migraine. Now there's positive nausea, vomiting, and photophobia. Now I wanna give you a pearl when we're talking about EMS. If you have somebody in the ambulance and they have photophobia, nausea, vomiting, because they're not opening their eyes and they have a really bad headache, we start thinking about brain bleeds. Right? We don't just say, oh, it's a migraine, no big deal, just a migraine here, right? The patient may tell you they have a history of migraine, that's great, but we always wanna treat worst case. We wanna, we wanna ask them, was there any trauma, any new medications, right? Did you fall? Did you get attacked? So never forget that, but you just wanna understand this. this is part of your A&P to understand this, okay? Now a cluster headache, because I'll, I'll give you one more pearl too. You may have a nurse or doctor that tells you, oh yeah, they're having a cluster headache. And you're like, you don't even know what that is. Well, now you know, that's why you're here. So a cluster headache, severe pain. It's a one-sided ache and it lasts between 15 minutes and three hours. The patient will be very restless because it's so severe and it, it commonly affects men over 20 years old. Now a tension headache is the most common headache in the entire population. It's a classic headache, a tension headache, and there's negative, there's no nausea, vomiting, and no photophobia. Where a migraine has nausea, vomiting, and photophobia, okay? So headache, no nausea, vomiting, no photophobia, but it affects both sides of the head, and it's non-pulsating. You can't feel that pulsating when you, know, when you have a headache. We've all had a headache before, I bet. So my friends, there it is. Let's move on to the next video. Now, as we start the endocrine chapter, uh, I first wanna do an overview of some of the buzzwords, some of the processes, some of the things you're gonna see. So let's start from the start. The endocrine cells, you can see right here, okay? The endocrine cells are the base units of this system. They're actually gonna be the ones that secrete into the extracellular fluid, okay? So think about that, okay? Endocrine cells, hormones. Your hormones are chemical messengers that have a certain origin where they start, where they're released, and they have a specific target and a certain effect on the body when they're released. And depending on the hormone, it's gonna be a much different reaction from one to another, okay? It's a chemical process. Now, there's three types of hormones. The first type is an amino acid derivative. This is like epinephrine. This is like thyroid hormone, norepinephrine. This is like, you can see here, melatonin, okay? Now two, second type, called a peptide hormone. These are short chain of amino acids, okay, a chain of them, and here's a few examples. Uh, ADH, we're gonna, and we're gonna talk about all these as we go along, okay? Just wanna give you a little preview. ADH, oxytocin, growth hormone, prolactin, 
And finally, there's lipid derivatives like steroid hormones and the prostaglins. So we're going to talk about all these, but you may get asked, you know, which of the following is an amino acid derivative, a peptide hormone, a lipid derivative? What is an endocrine cell? A lot of this is covered right here. You got it. So what I've done is I've put together a chart. Um, this chart is going to break down the anterior pituitary gland hormones. There's seven of the pituitary gland hormones on the anterior side. There's two in another video you'll watch on the posterior side. So here we go. So we have the anterior side. I've broken this up by the names of the hormone. In the middle, you can see here the target origin. You can see here what's going to happen. So let's break them down, okay? TSH, thyroid gland, target origin, the goal, secretion of the thyroid hormone. ACTH, its target is going to be the adrenal cortex. Right here you can see is glucocorticoid secretion. FSH, now we get a split here between female and males. Ovaries, female, testes, male. For females, we get estrogen secretion. For males, we get sperm maturation. Now, luteinizing hormone, LH, we get ovaries on one side, female, testes, male again. Here we go. Now, we get two things on ovary side. We're going to get progesterone secretion and ovulation. On the male side, we're going to get testosterone okay, secretion as well. All right. Now, prolactin, mammary glands, milk production, that lact. Think lactate, think like milk. Okay, that might make you remember it. Growth hormone affects all cells, and what that does, what's in the name, growth, but also is protein synthesis. Okay, it's very important. It will synthesize proteins at a higher level. Now, the last one is MSH. So its target is going to be the melanocyte of the skin, and what it's going to do, it's going to increase and synthesize melanin on the epidermis. There it is. So in a previous video, we talked about the anterior pituitary gland hormones. There were seven of those. Well, there's also a posterior pituitary gland. There's two hormones that are going to be the target secreted for the posterior pituitary gland. Now here it is. There's two. ADH. Oxytocin. So let's roll through them. ADH, antidiuretic hormone, okay? ADH, target is from origin, target, kidneys, okay? Now here it is. It's going to reabsorb water, elevate blood volume, and then in turn elevate your blood pressure. This is one of the body's life saving maneuvers at times, okay? When things start to get a little off with uh, blood volume, ADH. Oxytocin, females, uterus, mammary glands, males, sperm duct, prostates. Oxytocin, the goal from a uterus is to provide labor contractions. Mammary glands, ejection of milk. Now, what about men? I talked about sperm duct and the prostate. It's going to contract the sperm duct and the prostate. These are your two posterior, that means back, posterior pituitary gland hormones. There's two of them. There it is.
In this section, we're going to talk about the thyroid and the parathyroid hormones. Here we go. So we have the thyroid here, and we have our two types, the follicular epithelium and the C-cells. So the follicular epithelium has to do with T4 and T3, affects most cells, and it's going to increase energy, it's going to increase O2 consumption, and increase your growth and development. Now C-cells have to do with a CT hormone, bone and kidneys, and over here, it's going to drop your calcium. Now, the opposite side, the parathyroid hormone is going to also target the bone and kidneys, but it's going to increase your calcium concentration. So let's look at the whole board here. Chief cells are going to ultimately go to parathyroid hormone, which is going to increase calcium concentration. C cells, CT, lower calcium concentrations. That's the big key here. So now we're going to discuss the adrenal hormones. Now, the adrenals, remember, we have our adrenal. It's broken up between a cortex, the adrenal cortex, and the adrenal medulla. If I can give you a one pearl, think about the adrenal medulla as your epinephrine center, and this all will kind of come into play. So let's just talk about it. Adrenal cortex, we have mineral corticoids, glucocorticoids, androgens. We're going to talk about it. Now, mineral corticoids target the kidneys, glucocorticoids, most cells, most cells out there, okay? Now, the goal of the mineral corticoids and all this happening is to reabsorb sodium and water. The goal of glucocorticoids, release amino acids and start to get production going of glucose, of glycogen, okay? We want to form it, okay? Now, androgens, we're going to talk about later, we talk about reproductive, but Androgens can actually be released here by the adrenal cortex, but no one's really sure why or what effect that does. It's just something I want you to know about. It might, a weird question might come up, okay? Now, the adrenal medulla, at your epin, your, excuse me, that's your epinephrine and norepinephrine center, okay? Now, what is that going to do? It's going to affect most cells out there, and what is it going to do? It's going to increase cardiac activity, increase blood pressure. That's the main thing epinephrine, norepinephrine is going to do in the body. There it is. The pancreas lies in the left upper quadrant. The pancreas, the majority of it is in the left upper quadrant. A little bit may leak over into the right upper quadrant. The majority on your test, it's left lower quadrant is the majority of the pancreas. Now, the pancreas has two hormones. How many? Two hormones. The pancreas, alpha cells, is going to be our glucagon hormone. Beta cells is going to be our insulin hormone. The balance of our blood level, glucose, is an effect from our glucagon and our insulin. Okay? Just like with our calcium concentrations, we talked about earlier, with the CT hormone and the parathyroid hormone, it's going to be up and down of our calcium concentrations. This, glucagon and insulin, have to do with our effects of blood glucose levels. There it is.
Inside this video, we're going to talk about the penile gland. Now, the penile gland is very simple. Um, all it does is affects your day and night cycles. This is the most important piece of information. So, throughout our day and night cycles, we're going to either go to hold back our melatonin or release the melatonin. Melatonin is going to be highest, obviously, with our night cycle. When it's released, time to go to bed. <laughs> okay, so that is your penile gland. Just remember, it's got to do with our melatonin. Right here is our hormones of the reproductive system. Now, here's what we got to go over, the main part to this. First, I want you to know the male sex hormone is the androgens. The female sex hormone is the estrogens. Now, here we go. So we've got testes here with two types of cells, okay? The interstitial and the S. Now, the interstitial cells connect with the androgens. Androgens affect most cells. And what do we get? We get sperm support. We get protein synthesis out of that, okay? Now, our S cells over here are going to go out there inhibit. We're going to target the anterior pituitary, and we're going to inhibit any secretion of FSH. The ovaries with the follicular cells. Estrogen, okay, we have inhibin. Inhibin is going to do the same thing. Inhibin, anterior pituitary, it's going to inhibit FSH. Now, on the female side, well, we support the female. The, the follicular ma uh, maturation, okay? All right, the follicle maturation. Now, over here, we have the corpus luteum. This has to do with the progestins, uterus and mammary glands. And what is it gonna do? It's going to prepare the uterus for implantation and get the mammary glands ready for any secretions. There it is. Inside this video, I'm gonna talk about diabetes, type one versus type two. And I'm also going to discuss as well our diabetic emergencies, too low and too high. So a type 1 diabetic, we talked about in a previous video about beta cells having to do with insulin, how we produce insulin, okay? And how glucagon and insulin are going to be our counterbalance, right, for blood glucose in the body. What if I decide to destroy all your beta cells? Blood sugar is going to go way up because the alpha cells are going to win. There's no beta to balance it out. Well, that, that is a type 1 diabetic. A type 1 diabetic, their beta cells are destroyed. So they cannot even produce, have, can't produce insulin. So this is a type 1, also called juvenile diabetes, because you know, when you're young, you figure it out. Type 2 is usually called adult onset diabetes, because that's when it starts. So risk factors, which are pretty eerie that these risk factors of becoming a type 2 diabetic are the same risk factors that you would develop cardiac events. So here they are. High cholesterol, high blood pressure, obesity. Unfortunately, some people are stuck with family history. Just so you know. Okay. Now, what happens here? is we have a decline in insulin production. So, and also one thing I wrote down, I do want to mention it out loud to you, is usually they're over 45 or 50 when this can occur. Now, 
think about it. The body's getting older. There's a slowing down of insulin production, okay, due to some of these risk factors or the family history, okay. This is this risk factor group of type 2 diabetes, obesity, uh, high cholesterol, and high blood pressure screams coronary problems. Just want to let you know about that. Now, hypoglycemia, you're going to present, could be unresponsive in a coma. If you're awake and you have low, hypo means low, hypoglycemia, what that means is you're going to be pale, you're going to be cool, uh, and what's going to happen is you're going to uh, either be passed out unresponsive or acting very bizarre and altered mental status. Your blood glucose is going to be usually not a rule. It's not a rule. This is a practical tip. Hey, practical tip, not exam tip, practical. If someone is, every diabetic is different. You can have a diabetic at 30 and they're wide awake and altered. The same diabetic could be, I mean, I'm sorry, a different diabetic um, could be 30 and unresponsive. Some might be 60 and unresponsive. So everyone's different, okay? But you know, under 70, we start to worry. Under 60, we really start to worry. Now, DKA is too high. The biggest pearl I want to give you with DKA is that your patient is actually dehydrated as well. So if someone's dehydrated, what do they look like? Well, they got hot, dry skin. So do they. Now, the difference with this from dehydration is your blood sugar is extremely high. Three, four, five, six hundred, high on the glucometer. You have this deep, rapid breathing called Kuzmal breathing, okay? And the big pearl is a fruity odor from the ketones. Almost every question has it. It might not, though, so i give you a few other things to look at. There it is. Now, these right here are the thyroid disorders. Some are chronic, where the patient is living with it, and they're trying to sort it out with their doctor. Other ones are EMS-related ones. You may see this patient out in the field. And you might pick up on it. So let's talk about it. So you can see on one side we have too high. Now too high is going to be grave disease, thyroid storm. Too low is hypothyroidism and mitoxemia. Now let's talk about these, okay? Now, we can see here grave disease is a more chronic issue. So someone with grave disease, they might have an episode or a flare-up of their grave disease when their thyroid hormone just gets too high. They're going to appear agitated, altered, kind of irritable, altered mental status, tachycardia, okay? And they're sweating. What's going on with this patient, right? Um, you can see here, greatest autoimmune, agitation, weight loss, insomnia, tachycardia. Now, a thyroid storm is something completely different. That is when the level of thyroid hormone gets so high, it's all released freely into the blood, and this is very common if someone may be abusing levothyroxine or Synthroid. So here it is. Levothyroxine, which you see over on the low side, is a drug that people can use to increase their thyroid hormone. But that same drug can be used for weight loss if your thyroid levels are too high. If you overdose on levothyroxine, you can get a thyroid storm. It looks like sepsis, right? High fever, irritability, or a coma, hypotension, nausea, vomiting. You might think it's sepsis, which is not going to hurt the patient. I mean, you're going to treat them very similar way, 
But you got to think here, this could be a thyroid storm. So you want to ask about that. Now, what else? Too low. Too low is going to be hypothyroidism. That's chronic. Acutely is mitoxemia. Okay, now what's that? Let's talk about it. So let's just go over the buzzwords. This is a, someone with a low metabolism. These, these patients are usually found, they have pale skin, they are very unemotional, they um, may have puffy or thick skin. Okay, so may have think about with uh, hypothyroidism, the chronic side. They may be taking levothyroxine, Synthroid, the brand name, because they need to raise their levels to get back to normal, okay? Now, right here, we can see we have fatigue, weight gain, that dry, puffy skin, depression, bradycardia. You may have a patient, again, unemotional and depressed. It's not depression, it's their thyroid level. So that's something to think about too, okay? Now, if they're in mitoxemia, what this is, mitoxemia, is a thickening of the connective tissues in the skin and other places in the body. So what happens there is your patient can become very, very hypothermic. Still look like this, but they're very bradycardic and hypothermic, and it's myoxemia. Sneaky, okay? These are not talked about a lot, but I guarantee you'll get a question on it. You gotta know this. These are the thyroid disorders. Remember, too high is Graves, too low myoxemia, too high is thyroid storm, too low hypothyroidism. Remember the drug, levothyroxine, is gonna raise your levels. And if you abuse it, you might get a thyroid storm because you put in too much in your blood. There it is. So for you, I've created a chart here of the adrenal disorders. Too much circulating adrenal hormone and too low. Too high is Cushing syndrome. Okay, you may hear words like moon face or the buffalo hump, which is too much fat on someone's back that accumulates, okay? Um, this is Cushing syndrome. So you're gonna see, with that buzzword, uh, weight gain. You're gonna see bruising more easily. And you're gonna see an increased risk of MI or stroke with someone who has Cushing syndrome. Think about it. Weight gain because they have too high of circulating adrenal hormones. So they're reabsorbing that sodium and water with we talked about earlier with our hormones. So all those actions are happening all the time. Put them all together in a pot and you're gonna be at risk of MI and strokes, right? So this can happen due to, I guess you could say for lack of a better word here, side effects of steroid use. And long-term or steroid use, and I'm talking about all kinds of steroids, like not steroids like you know for building muscle, Talking about like prednisone, okay? Long-term steroid use could cause this. Long-term steroid use or using a steroid for a short period of time could be a side effect of, and you get this. Um, it's on both sides of this, I want you to know. Now, this is more though on the Cushing side. On this side, about 90% of people that have too low, it's an autoimmune disease called Addison's disease. Addison's disease, what it is, is an autoimmune disorder where your body starts to attack your adrenal cortex and destroy it. And because it's being attacked and destroyed, 
it's not going to release as much adrenal hormones like the ones we talked about before. So imagine what happens then. Okay, the opposite of this. So what you get is you get a low production of all three hormones. This is adrenal insufficiency. So think about it. If your body is in a state and it needs to release these hormones, it might not be able to. And this causes a very, very bad effect in the body, especially under times of stress where you could have very easily a cardiac event because you have this. There it is. Hey everyone, welcome to our next section. We're gonna be talking about everything to do with blood. So first, I wanna break down what exactly is in our blood so we can understand it. There's a lot to discuss here, so here we go. Now the first piece here is the composition of blood. So what's your blood made of? Now your blood, as you can see on the board here, is made up of plasma, which is 55%. Well, that leaves 45% of something called, right down here, formed elements. Now the formed elements is red blood cells, white blood cells, and platelets. Now, when we talk about plasma, Plasma is built up of different proteins that each have a very specific function. We're going to talk about that in another video. Okay. Red blood cells, their goal is to carry oxygen and transport oxygen and carbon dioxide. Okay, moving around. White blood cells have to do with the defense systems in the body, aka the immune response. Okay, it's the immune system. And the final piece down here is gonna be platelets. So with platelets, what we're talking about is clotting, okay? So we think platelets, we think clotting responsibilities, okay? So here's everything here, 55% plasma, 45% all these formed elements. These are the basics. Let's get a little more advanced next video. Here we go. Let's talk about red blood cells. So I'm gonna do a second video on hemoglobin, but first we're gonna talk about hematocrit. So first, a quick little thing you gotta know about red blood cells. So remember what we talked earlier on about formed elements. That makes up 45% of the whole blood, which is plasma, 55%, formed elements, 45%. Right, so. We talked about red blood cells and white blood cells being inside, and platelets being inside of the formed elements. Well, here it is, folks. Red blood cells make up 99.9% .9 of that 45% of formed elements. Okay? Now we got that out of the way. You can see red blood cells make up 99.9% .9 of formed elements, leaving that 0.1 to be white blood cells and, and platelets. Okay, now, if you were to stop this video right now, and you were to stop watching right now, and I said, hematocrit, 45%, have a good night. That's great. That's not bad. But if you really want to understand this at a deep level, so you know it for life, let me tell you why and what it is behind it. So here it is. So hematocrit is the percentage of whole blood volume occupied by elements. 
So, if red blood cells are 99.9% .9 of the formed elements, wouldn't it make sense that a normal person would be about 45%? Yes. Now, of course, it's not a rule. So let me explain something to you. Hang on. In male patients, okay, when we're looking at a hematocrit, which is part of what they call the H and H, which is the hematocrit and the hemoglobin coming in the next video, is the first H, okay? So males, the safe range is around, again, it's not a hard rule, it's a range, but if you're given, you know, this is a, a practical tip as well, not just A&P, but practically, you could be doing a tra inner facility transport. Yeah, you know, he's going for a blood transfusion. Uh, his hematocrit came back at 17. Oh, whoa. You know, well, you know that's low. Well, maybe before this video, you would have, oh, well, I don't know, low, high, what's that? What does hematocrit mean? Now you know. So the males, okay, safe range, 40 to 54, that's safe range. Really, we like 45, 46%, I like that. Females are 37 to 47, safe range, 42% were, I, we like that. Now, why is this? Okay, here it is. So, Males have a sex, remember we talked about the endocrine and the sex hormones? Look how it's all coming together, folks. Now, check this out. We're talking about androgens. That's the male sex hormone. Well, that male sex hormone produces red blood cells. Okay? Estrogen does not. Which is why males have a little bump and a little higher number with red blood cells. And there it is, hematocrit. I'll see you on hemoglobin next video. Here we go. Hey, my friends, back here with our next video in our blood composition section. Here's what we're talking about now. Simple one here. We already talked about hematocrit. We're talking about the other H of our H and H, which is going to be hemoglobin. Now, what is hemoglobin and what does it do? Well, it's the ability the transport oxygen and carbon dioxide in the body. So what does this mean? Well, here's a normal, here's a normal level, okay? Again, I'm gonna give you a quick tip. If you were to watch the video right now and stop watching, and I said hemoglobin 15, and you left the video, good. Remember that. Now let me let me explain a little more for you. Here's hemoglobin. Now, the goal, male or female, is 12 to 18 grams per deciliter. That's how it's measured. So 15 sounds right about in the middle, okay? That's the safe range, okay? Male or female. Now, if our hemoglobin is too low, what that means is we cannot transport oxygen and carbon dioxide very well and your patient suffers. That's the big pearl with this. So now we're talking about platelets. Here's the number with platelets. So our goal is at 350,000. A range from 150 to 500 is fair. Now, another word for platelets is thrombocytes, okay? So their whole goal is to aid in the clotting process. Now here it is, okay? It's produced in the bone marrow. Next year, each one lasts about nine to 12 days then replaced. And the final piece here, two buzzwords for you. We have thrombo 
cytopenia, thrombocytosis. So here's what we have. A volume loss, cytopenia. And then right here, infection, cancer, inflammation, causes it to be too high of a platelet level. And there it is. So now I want to talk about uh, plasma proteins. So in the first video, we talked about how plasma is 55% of blood, and then 45% is formed elements. I told you that plasma is broken up into different proteins. But what are those proteins? What do they do? What are their names? Here we go. So first, we have the albumins. The albumins make up 60% of the plasma proteins. Now, being it's at 60%, its goal is to keep the osmotic pressure. That's the goal of it, to maintain, okay? So there it is. Now, number two is gonna be the globulins. These globulins are at 35% for the plasma. Now, they're broken up, so the subdivision of those globulins is gonna be antibodies, which are immunoglobulins, and then we have the transport proteins. So here we go, antibodies. Immunoglobulins, they attack foreign invaders and pathogens, okay? Transport proteins have a pretty cool job. So what they're gonna do is they're gonna bind to ions, they're gonna bind to hormones, and what they're gonna do is, let's say there's uh, something out there that is a very low solubility in water, it's gonna transport it, okay? And the final piece here is the fibrinogen. So this has to do with blood clotting, okay? So What's the plasma protein that has to do with blood clotting? There it is, fibrinogen. I'll see you in the next video. Now we're gonna discuss white blood cells. So white blood cells, I'm gonna give you some names here. They're broken up into a few different types of white blood cells. So let's start with that first, okay? So. We have white blood cells. Here are the different types. We have neutrophils, we have eosinophils, we have basophils, we have monocytes, we have lymphocytes. Each one of these we're gonna break down in separate videos, what they do, okay? So I just wanna let you know, those are the main players, the types of white blood cells. Now, what is leukocytes, okay? A white blood cell, another name for it, so AKA leukocytes. White blood cell, leukocyte, it's the same thing, okay? So that's very important to remember. Now, they defend against invasion and pathogens, they remove toxins and waste in the body, that's what white blood cells do. If you get a test question, which is physically larger, like one-to-one, -one, a red blood cell or a white blood cell, a white blood cell is actually larger. There it is. Now, right here, I break down all the types of white blood cells. Now, what they do is pretty similar, but they all do it in a little bit of a different way, okay? So here it is. First, we have neutrophils. Now, neutrophils are gonna engulf pathogens and debris. And what they use 
is they use a cytotoxic attack, okay? Now, eosinophils, they're gonna attack antibody-related materials. They also have a cytotoxic enzyme attack, okay? Basophils are gonna enter damaged tissues. They're gonna release histamine and produce inflammation. Monocytes are gonna engulf pathogens and debris. And then finally, the lymphocytes. That has to do with the lymphatic system. They are the main cells of the lymphatic system, and they are the defense against pathogens. There it is. So there's just some buzzwords because you're gonna have these on your test. Okay, what does this do? What does that do? These are the main buzzwords, so now you know. So now we're gonna talk about the blood levels you absolutely need to know. Let's dive into it. So first we have hematocrit, also known as HCT, hematocrit. That talks about the percentage of formed elements. And we talked about that in a previous video, okay? Whether a male or female, we're looking around 37, 54% is our goal between the lowest we like on a female and the highest on a male, okay? Now, it's called polycythemia is going to be too high. Okay, anemia is going to be too low, okay? Quick tip, anything with an A in front of it in medicine usually means it's non-existent or not enough, just to tell you, okay? Complete blood count is known as a CBC. So that is the number of red blood cells per milliliter, okay? Now here it is, 42,63 million, okay? That's our range, okay? Now it's Polycythemia is too high, anemia too low, same deal, okay? Now here is, see the HB, H and a lowercase b is your hemoglobin. Hemoglobin is measured 12 to 18 grams per deciliter, okay? You could see here, well, we don't really talk about, there's no, nothing, there's no word for too high. Um, there is a word for too low, that's anemia, okay? Now what about down here, what are these things? We got MCV, MCHC, whoa. Well, let's just go through them. So here we go. So first, we have the MCV right here. What this measures is the average volume of one red blood cell. You can see it here, okay? 82 to 101, okay? This means you are normocytic, okay? You are macrocytic if it's too much. You are microcytic if it's too low, okay? Now, MCHC is the average amount of hemoglobin in one red blood cell. 27 to 34 on that realm. Here it is. Too much, you're hypochromic. You're hypochromic, too low, normal chromic. So if I say to you, your patient is normal chromic, you're going to know that their average amount of hemoglobin on one red blood cell is normal. There it is, folks. This is your blood levels you need to know. Sickle cell disease. Very misunderstood. You're gonna know it cold right now. Here it is. So with sickle cell disease, what we have is most people out there in the world have hemoglobin A, which is 2 alpha, 
and then two beta. That looks like A2, B2. That is normal hemoglobin A. So if you don't have sickle cell trait or sickle cell disease, you have hemoglobin A. Okay. Now sickle cell hemoglobin is called hemoglobin S. You got your two alphas, A2, but you have two S's, S2. That gives your hemoglobin, hemoglobin S. So here's what happens with a sickle cell red blood cell. A normal red blood cell, when the sickle cell and the normal red blood cell are oxygenated, everything's fine. But as soon as that patient gets deoxygenated, as soon as that red blood cell gets deoxygenated, it turns into a sickle fashion. And when it's in that sickle fashion, it can obstruct small blood vessels, okay? Now, sickle cell is actually passed down from parent to child, so you can basically say it's like an autoimmune passed on disease from, from family member to family member. Now, here's the deal. There's a trait, sickle cell trait and sickle cell disease. If, the, if your patient says, I have sickle cell trait, well, that means they're this. They're A2BS. Those people usually do fine. They very rarely have any problems ever. They do not have sickle cell disease, just a trait of it. So they don't have the disease. They don't have sickle cell. If both parents have sickle cell traits, or they both have sickle cell disease, that combines together, and that brings it right here, which is sickle cell hemoglobin S, A2S2 disease. Here's normal. Here's a sickle cell. There it is. The biggest thing to remember is remember that hemoglobin, hemoglobin, has to do with how we transport oxygen and carbon dioxide. So when somebody is in sickle cell disease, that affects their ability to transport oxygen and carbon dioxide when they're in sickle cell crisis. And when they're in crisis, they're gonna be deoxygenated and they're gonna have small blood clots going on in their body. There it is, folks. All right, we are back with another video. We're talking about the heart layers. So we have our, think about our heart, which we know is a muscle. Okay, we're gonna talk about that. Well, it's surrounded by something called a pericardial sac. There's a little space in there, and there's layers in that pericardium, that lining, and there's also layers of the heart itself. Okay, so here we go. Let's start with the most outer layer, which is the pericardial cavity. It could also be called a pericardial sac. You've probably heard, as other videos talk about, talk about cardiac tamponade. That's fluid pressure in this space, you see? Now, if we have a heart attack down here in the myocardium, that's heart muscle dying, okay? We're gonna talk, we're gonna go through, but that's just a little uh, preview for you, okay? Now, here we go. Pericardium is made up of the parietal pericardium, the most outer layer, which is basically the, the lining of the pericardial sac. This right here is basically the most outer layer of the heart. It sits right on the heart. It's the epicardium, which is also called the visceral pericardium. The visceral, it's right on it, okay? Now here's the heart wall. This same layer is the most outer layer of the heart, the epicardium, that visceral pericardium, okay? 
That's the most outer layer. Same as here, okay, same layer. Now we get down to the inner parts of the heart. So the actual muscle itself of the heart is the myocardium. Myo means muscle, okay? So there it is. And the inner workings inside the heart is the endocardium. So we go from the parietal pericardium, the epicardium, also known as the visceral pericardium. This is the same thing. Okay, don't get confused. Same, same thing. Then we go to the myocardium. Then we go to the endocardium. This particular one here is part of the epicardium, is part of the heart wall, and the last layer of the pericardial cavity. There it is. Hey everyone, welcome to our heart section here in Anatomy and Physiology Mastery. We're going to be talking about heart blood flow. Now, I've done other videos on heart blood flow, you'll see it in the course, but this I want to be very detailed and I want to be slow going through and I want to make sure that you understand this. So we're going to go very slow and, and controlled. Now here it is. Heart blood flow. What is so important about the heart? Well, the heart is our pump in, in, in our body that pumps blood from our fingertips to our toenails, from our head to our toes, to make sure that every organ gets oxygenated blood. That's what the heart does. The second thing the heart has to do is once it's pumped blood out and it's given away the oxygen to the system, it needs, it's, it is the means of getting more oxygen in the system by connecting with the lungs. We're going to talk about that in a second, but the heart is partners with the lungs. Okay. It's very important to remember. Okay. Now I'm going to go through how it all flows. So you understand it. Now, the first thing that you need to know, and you'll see it right here. When you think about arteries, I want you to think away. When we talk about veins, think towards. What does that mean? Arteries go away from the heart, veins go towards the heart. So let's start over here, okay? What is the SVC? What is the IVC? Well, it stands for superior vena cava and inferior vena cava. Vena means it's part of the venous system. What did I say? Veins go towards the heart. Well, this IVC and SVC is going towards the heart. Now, superior in medicine means above, inferior means below, okay? Now here's what it is. All the blood pooling in the venous system from up here dumps into the SVC. Everything from mesentery leg down here dumps into the IVC and it travels up, okay? So all this blood pooling from the whole body comes right here to a head, right in the right atrium. Now, how do I tell my students to differentiate the atria from the ventricles? It's a little trick. Now, here's how you remember it. I like to tell my students that the atria is not as strong as the ventricles are. And I want you to give the stronger ventricles a job to do. They have a task and they must achieve it. All the atria is going to do is pass the blood down to its stronger partner. Okay, now here it is. The right atria gets the blood from the SVC and the IVC. This blood does not have any oxygen because it's already been dropped off. The blood is returning back to the heart to get more oxygen, which remember is that one of the two things that the heart is responsible for. Now, here it is. 
right, Atria? Goes through a valve. What's the name of that valve? The tricuspid valve. I put the number three here so you remember, okay? Tri three. Goes through the valve into the right ventricle. Now we gotta give the right ventricle a job, okay? So what's the job of the right ventricle gonna be? The job is going to be to get oxygen, okay? Because we don't have any oxygen. So the right ventricle's job in this earth is to get oxygen. Where do we, where on here do we see oxygen? Oh, here it is, the lungs. I have oxygen, okay. So how do we, how do we get there? Well, what if we made an artery that goes away from the heart towards the lungs? And we call it the pulmonary artery. There it is. We have to go through the pulmonary valve to get there, right? So here we go. I'm going to draw it out for you. So here we go. From the right, right ventricle, the pulmonary artery. I'm going to put PA. There's a valve in here. I'm just going to put it over here. Just for ease of use here. It's more down here, but just to give you an idea. Here's your pulmonic valve. Okay, here's the valve. Okay, now we hit the lungs. What do the lungs have in their capillary beds? Oxygen. We take it. Thanks for the oxygen. Now, right now, this, you know, this heart blood flow, if you will, we're sitting at the lungs, we got oxygen. Veins go towards the heart. We got to make a vein to go back to the heart. Where are we going to go back to? Well, we haven't gone over here yet. There it is. So, pulmonary vein brings us back. Now we're in the left atria. Okay, so we're, it's beautiful. Right ventricle, you did your job. You get a check mark. All done with the right side. Now, what are we doing? We're in the left atria. We have oxygen. What's the second job of the heart? The second job of the heart is to pump blood to the rest of the body. That's what we're gonna do right now with the right ventricle. Here we go. So there's a valve here. And the, the number two you gotta remember here. It's the bicuspid, also called the mitral valve. I don't make the names, just telling you. So let's call it bicuspid because we think three, we think two, makes sense. Okay, we go through. Okay, now we're in the left ventricle. What's the job of the left ventricle going to be? It's going to be, the job is going to be pump to the body. Okay, pump to the body. Great. How are we going to do that? We need something strong. We need the strongest piece in this whole system, the aorta. There it is. So aorta, we're going to go wrap it around like this. Okay, some are going to go up here. Some are going down here. Okay, there's our aorta. The strongest piece in the whole system because the aorta has got to finish the job that the left ventricle started. And there it is. There it is. Okay, we gave the right ventricle a job of getting O2. It did it. We gave the left ventricle a job of pumping the body. It has done it, pairing up with the aorta. Now, through the aorta, all the blood's pumped out to your fingertips, to your toenails, to your head, to your toes, and then it gets flipped around again through the venous system because the oxygen gets dropped off, and we go again and again and again and again and again and again. That's how you do it. So that is heart blood flow. There it is. Watch this over and over until you know it as well as I do. I know you can do it.
right here, we're going to talk about the exact heart electrical system and how impulses are gone through the heart. Okay. Now, first, I want to talk about what are pacemakers. So, in a normal heart and also a sinus rhythm, um, we're going to have the pacemaker be what's called the SA node up here. Okay. Now, I just want to give that little thought to you. We're going to talk about pacemakers later. Okay. Now, here's heart electrical activity. Now, remember, the heart hasn't changed. Even though it's not marked here, if I go like this and I cut it, I have the same players. This is the right atria, left atria, right ventricle, left ventricle, same heart, just a different labeling system. Okay. It went from blood flow to now the electrical system of the impulses of the heart. That's all we've done. Now, remember the electrical is actually what makes the heartbeats happen, okay? And the mechanical is the other side of that. So the SA node starts the impulse. It then travels through what we call the internodal pathways through here, okay? It ends up here at the AV node. The AV node goes over to the bundle of Hiss through the right and the left bundle branches. And then we end up here down at the base of the ventricles, what they call the Purkinje fibers. Now, we already went over heart blood flow. This is the electrical flow of the heart. That's it. That's all it is. Now, here's the big where people get messed up. If I have a sinus rhythm, the heart rate is 60 to 100. Right. If the SA node is in charge in the, in the starting pacemaker, then we get 60 to 100. What if the AV node says, you know what, SA node, you're weak, I'm taking over. Well, the heart rate's only going to be 40 to 60. And there's not going to be a P wave, which means you have a junctional rhythm. In ventricular rhythm, if the SA fails, the AV fails, and now we're down here and the, and the ventricular is taken over, you get a heart rate of 20 to 40. If you look up idioventricular rhythm and you can see it, it's in this course, go to the, the paramedic section, you'll see a full breakdown in EKGs. There it is. Hey everyone, we're gonna talk more about ACS, acute coronary syndrome. There's a lot of words here, a lot of buzzwords. I need you to understand this cold at a deep level. So we're gonna talk about it now so you understand these buzzwords with cardiology. Now here it is. Now, we know a STEMI on 12-lead EKG is two up and two down. At least, remember the elevation's gotta be usually at least for protocol, at least two millimeters up, okay? Now, acute coronary syndrome, what that means, ACS, it does not mean it's a heart attack. It means there is an acute process going on inside one of your coronary arteries. We don't know exactly what it is. We don't know if it's a spasm, a half blockage, a full blockage, just a temporary blockage. Will it last 15 minutes? Will, will it be indefinite, like a heart attack? We don't know. But we know there's something going on. So this is what it is. You go to your patient and they have chest pain and they have difficulty breathing. They have nausea vomiting. 
those are your main uh, symptoms of someone having a heart attack, right? It could also be that back pain, I'm weak, those are sly symptoms, right? Okay, now, we don't, if we don't do an EKG, if we don't do any blood work, and let's say, well, we would, at that point, we would be at the uh, EMT level, right? Because we may, we may be able to do an EKG, but we can't, we may not be able to read it, okay? We would assume maybe they're having a heart attack. So if we do an EKG and we do blood work, we can figure out if what is actually going on. And we can call it something different than an ACS. Now, here we go. So you're a paramedic, you do a 12-week EKG. You know how to read it. Great. Well, here's the question. Is it a STEMI or is it not a STEMI? Is, the STL, is there ST elevation showing a STEMI, two up and two down? Or is it not a STEMI? Or it's something else, but it's not a STEMI, okay? So that, here's where we go. Now, if it's a STEMI, it's a heart attack. It's a full-blown heart attack. Call the code. It's a STEMI. Now, if it, the ST elevation is not, there's no ST elevation, so it's not, we can't call it a heart attack just yet. That's why we go to the hospital with our patient. They draw blood work. Now, if the troponin level comes back normal and the patient still has symptoms, they have symptomatic chest pain. Ah, my chest just started hurting. It's crushing 20 minutes ago. Uh, I'm throwing up. I'm unstable. And you've gave an aspirin. You've gave in nitro. You gave pain meds. They're still symptomatic. They're still in trouble. But the troponins are normal. That's unstable angina, unstable agina, okay? That's what it is, unstable, however you want to say it, okay? If the troponins come back elevated, that means heart muscle is actively dying. This is called an NSTEMI. Because what, remember, what a heart attack is, it's just simple. The myocardium's dying, that's all it is, okay? So the troponins up, but the 12 weight Evan, the 12 weight was fine. Well, that's, it's called a STEMI is when we see it on the EKG. You can have a heart attack and not see it on the EKG, you see it in the blood work, it's an NSTEMI. So that's, that's all the words, the lingo. Now, what is this? What is Prinz metal angina? Okay. It is not a blockage of the coronary artery with plaque. It is a spasm of the coronary artery where it goes like this and just shuts, just shuts down. So it's spasming. And then we hope if we give nitro, it will open up. If we treat the patient, it will get better. If, but, so that's interesting. Now, how are we gonna know this in the field? We're not, but you might be transporting a patient in a facility who has prensamental angina and know that it's basically the same as a heart attack as long as you're under spasm. There it is. Now this right here is a very important video for my paramedic students, okay? Now anyone can watch this video, I'm not saying you skip it, but this is not gonna be an EMT level national registry prep video. This is gonna be a paramedic level video, okay? But you wanna learn? Come on in, it's totally cool. Just wanna let you know. So here it is. So we know we have our 12 wood EKG, okay? We know we have all the leads, now here they are. You know, if this is a printed EKG, it runs like this. Lead one, two, three, AVR, AVL, AVF, V1, V2, V3, V4, V5, V6. Okay, 
So first, we're going to label. If we have two up and we have a STEMI, which is two up and two down, typical changes, where would we have the MI where the elevation is? So this is the, looking at the lateral wall of the heart, one in AVL. Looking at the inferior wall of the heart is two, three AVF. V1 and V2 is septal. V3 and V4 is anterior. V5, V6 is lateral. So if I have a inferior wall MI, where's the elevation? Two, three, AVF. It could be, remember, it's two or more friends, two or more contiguous leads need to be up, and then we need reciprocal changes. So let's say that two and three were ST elevated. Okay, at least two uh, millimeters, two little boxes up. And then I look at, let's say, V1 or V2 or V3 and V4 or V5, V6 or 1 AVL, and I see two down, okay? Most commonly, it'd probably be in the, the V leads. That makes sense, okay? Because they're opposites, okay? We have a STEMI, okay? So if we had, let's say we had the lateral wall up, or these up, or all these up, okay? We look for the opposite. Usually it's the inferior is the opposite of everything. Usually. Not a rule, usually. Okay, now, what about coronary arteries? You're gonna get asked in a test. Well, you have a lateral wall STEMI. Which coronary artery is being blocked? Well, here it is. If one, if the MI, if the STEMI, which stands for an S T elevation MI. We're going to, have to do another video on what is acute coronary syndrome and breaking it down because there's a STEMI and an end STEMI. We're going to talk about another video. Just want to tell you what it is. Okay. If we have a ST elevation MI in one AVL, the circumflex and the LAD are affected. Circumflex LAD. Notice both laterals, which is here and here, one AVL, V5, V6, affect your circumflex and can affect your LAD, okay? Now, if I attack the inferior wall, that's my right, right coronary artery. Boom, 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 okay? Now, what does that lead to everything else? Everything else is straight LAD, okay? Now, if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense, right? Left anterior descending, and this is all basically anterior, okay? Makes sense, right? So as a way to remember it, my friends, I hope this gave you insight so you have this down cold. This is gonna be on a lot more tests than one, that's for sure. This is a very common equation you're gonna see, so I wanna explain it to you now so you know it. So we talk about cardiac output, that is how efficient the heart is at its job. Think of a, an employee getting graded on their performance. Well, in this case, the heart is our employee and we're gonna grade its performance. So what we have is, we have a few buzzwords, cardiac output, stroke volume, and heart rate. So here's the equation, you, gotta, you have to know us. CO, cardiac output, is equal to the stroke volume, the mLs per heartbeat, times the heart rate, which is the beats per minute, gives you the mLs per minute. So if let's say 
my heart rate is 70. And I'm getting 80 mLs per beat out at a rate of 70. I'm at 5,600 mLs a minute. That's a normal, oh, a normal, a normal uh, patient, if you will. Because most patients are going to be around, around 60, 70. Again, we've talked about how you know, the heart rate could be less. Of course, you're an athlete or a runner. We talked about that okay? in other videos like 40s, 50s. Other people could be a little higher. Talk about heart transplant patients. They might be higher. But this is a good rule to keep in mind right here. There it is. This is something that may come up. And I don't want you to be fooled by it. So, as you know, heart transplants nowadays are extremely common to get. And if you have a heart that is transplanted, it can last anywhere from 15, 20, even 25 years. Okay, that's not uncommon. Now, something you want to know about a heart transplant patient is this they have no vagus nerve. So, when that donor heart leaves that body to go to the recipient, well, they have to cut the nerves. So they have to cut the vagus nerve. They have to sever the vagus nerve. So there's no nervous system control of the heart. The heart uh, is basically affected by the heart itself and just the uh, circulating hormones. That's it. Like epi and norepi. So what happens is in a normal patient, you have that parasympathetic and sympathetic control of the heart. In transplant patients, there's no vagus nerve. So the sympathetic takes over a slight edge, essentially. And the heart rate's always gonna be a little faster. And it's also, if it does get faster due to hormone release, then it takes a longer time to get back down to normal. Um, this is something you should know about heart transplant patients. Just wanna let you know about it. This right here, is the basic building blocks of this system. So what we're gonna talk about now is the blood vessels. We're gonna start with the arterial and then the venous side, okay? So earlier on, I talked about heart blood flow in a previous section, but what actually takes place after heart blood flow? Well, here it is. Okay, this is in a broad sense what it is. So, we all know that after the left ventricle, blood is pumped to the aorta. Okay, it must go up, it must go down. Okay, it is pumped to the aorta and then hits the large and then later on medium arteries. Okay, so think about it. If you were to puncture your aorta, tremendous amount of pressure. But if you were to puncture an artery, tremendous amount of pressure. Because it's got to be pumped through. Okay. Now, after that, blood is then sent to smaller arterioles. The arterioles connect this oxygen-rich blood to the capillaries. Okay. Now we all know, if I, if I say one word about the capillaries, this is where the exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide takes place, in the capillaries. We all remember that. Okay. Now, here are capillaries. The capillaries are our bridge from the arterial side 
to the Venus side. So here they are. Now we're on the Venus side. Now we remember the arterial side takes blood away from the heart because everyone else needs it. The oxygen, rich blood. The Venus side goes, well, we need more now. <laughs> so it comes back. Okay. So here we go. Capillaries then move over to the venules. Okay. They move on to the veins, which then go from small veins to medium-sized veins, larger veins, like veins we talk about, until it all comes to a head in the vena cava, which is the superior vena cava and the inferior vena cava, which is right in front. All that blood comes together and then clicks over to the right atrium. And then we start our heart blood flow, which we've gone over. So this is important to know, just at a broad scope, how it works. And these are really some of your key terms. You gotta know these. There it is. The blood vessel structure has three distinct layers. Now, the very point here is it's the same whether it's an artery or a vein, and they both include smooth muscle. There's a buzzword for you. Now, here's what we have, okay? There's a lot on this board. Let's break it down. So, I want you to think that I, you know, if we take a, like a circular artery like this, okay, or a vein, right? Blood has to flow through that pathway, right? So what I've done here is I've kind of just took a cross section up here of the three layers. Now the cool thing is, if you read these terms, it kind of makes sense. So here's the, the blood, this would be the blood in this case, and we have our layers, okay? So if you look here, the first layer is called, the most inner layer is called the tunica interna, okay? So interna sounds like inside. That makes sense. It's the most inner layer. Great. So we check it off. Okay. Tunica media sounds like the middle. That well, there's three layers. We, we just gotta know there's three layers. There's the middle one. Tunica media. That's the middle one. Okay. Great. And the tunica externa. That sounds like the exterior of a building. That's that's, that's the most outer layer. There it is. So inside. Tunica interna, the most inner layer, okay? The middle layer, tunica media, outer layer, tunica externa. Pretty cool, right? So now, remember that there's, there are gonna be bands of smooth muscle throughout this. Okay, I put it here to remind you that smooth muscle, and we're gonna talk about this vasoconstriction versus vasodilation right now, is Smooth muscle controls how the arteries are gonna work, right? So hear me out here. If we have vasoconstriction, that is gonna increase blood pressure. If we have vasodilation, that's going to lower blood pressure, okay? So I'll give you an example. If someone has a very, very high blood pressure, it's really high, right? Let's say it, someone sitting in a chair, and their blood pressure is 180 over 90. They are in some sort of vasoconstriction. They have to be. If the same person sitting in that chair and they're resting, and they're 80 over 40, 
they're gonna be vasodilation. There it is. The bridge between the arterial side and the venous side is the capillaries. So what we have here is two different ways for the blood flow to go through the capillaries and make it to the venous side. The first option is capillary beds, and the second option is anastomoses, and we're gonna talk about that. So here's what we have. So as blood comes through these small arteries here, it's gonna end up in one of our arterioles, okay? Now, the blood has two options. Does it go through these precapillary sphincters that are laid across this capillary bed, okay? Now, normally there's, you know, one, two, or three of these laid out. I just want to show you the difference between this and the anastomosis down here, okay? Now, as blood goes across these capillaries, it makes it to the venial up to the vein. Pretty cool, okay? And this will get smaller and then larger as it goes up, okay? Just so you're aware. Now, you look and you go, what's this? What's this section here? So what it is, it's an arterial venous anastomosis. Now what that is, is it skips the capillary bed. It's a bridge, it's a connection, direct connection, like a direct, like a direct flight <laughs> from the arterial side to the venous side. And this is what it is. You can see it right here. So this is what the capillary bed looks and feels like. Remember all the players here. The arterial heads down, we can go the anastomosis route or the capillary bed route. The sphincters, remember they, they're involved in opening, closing, and flowing. We're gonna decide how that happens. There it is. My goal with this video is for you to understand blood pressure because people are gonna be asking about you and what you're doing when you're taking a blood pressure and what their blood pressure ends up being and what's the top number, what's the bottom number, and it's important. You have, you have to really understand this like a true professional, and I want you to understand this just as well as anyone. So here we go. Now, we first have to understand this basic buzzword, okay? Another medical buzzword, here it is. There's systole and diastole. Systole, means it's the contracting heart. Diastole means the relaxing heart. So when I say ventricular systole, it is the maximum contraction pressure. When I say ventricular diastole, it's the minimum relaxation. Because the heart's gonna contract, relax, contract, relax. Okay? So now we know that, Let's dive into this. So the arterial pressure is a patient's blood pressure. We're just calling it blood pressure, but it's really, what is the pressure inside? What is the pressure? What's going on inside your arteries? Let's check it out. So we do. Now the systolic is the peak pressure, the highest pressure during ventricular, which is how we contract, okay, ends in the ventricles, we know that, our blood flow, we did, did that already. It is the peak pressure 
during ventricular systole when the heart is contracting. So that's our top number, systolic. Diastolic is the minimum, the lowest pressure that we have, the bottom number, when the heart relaxes again. There it is, okay? That's blood pressure 101. This right here are two of the main ways that the body controls blood pressure and how the blood pressure leads to be at a given time. So first, we have baroreceptors. Now, a quick point before we get into this. In the aortic bodies, in the carotid bodies, are where you're gonna find these receptors. Now, baroreceptors are really checking the pressures inside of the vessels and for any stretch in the receptors. That's the baroreceptor. It's about pressure. The chemoreceptors is nothing to do with pressure, it has to do with chemicals. So we're talking about pH changes, oxygen changes, carbon dioxide changes, cerebral spinal fluid changes. And that's how they respond to the differences. So one's about pressure, one's about chemicals. There it is. So what exactly is arteriosclerosis? Well, here it is. I'm gonna lay it out for you and I'm gonna show you the two main pathways and how a patient can get it. So let's just go line by line here, okay? So first off, arteriosclerosis is the, is the cause, the most common cause of strokes and heart attacks in patients. Now you probably have heard over here in the corner, of coronary artery disease, also known as CAD. If you see CAD in a chart, they have arteriosclerosis, okay? So what it is, it's a thickening or toughening of the arteries that supply blood flow. And remember, if it's in an artery to the brain, which is called a stroke, right, can, can occur if it gets really bad. We're going to talk about it. If it's coronary artery, then it's the heart. And if it's another area of the body, it's another area of the body, right? So all kinds of arteries we talked about in the other video. Now, here's what it is. There are focal calcifications, or basically due to aging, it's also sadly a, a big risk factor of this with diabetes, is calcium deposits start making its way into the tunica media and it starts hardening up the vessels. Now, the other common way is the main root of arteriosclerosis is you have a high, high cholesterol in your bloodstream. And what's just happening is you're getting lipid deposits into that tunica media. And it starts off where you can make changes, but then it gets to a point where you can't reverse the damage that's been done. So this is why, you know, you may have, a, you know, I know this is not EMS care, but we're gonna see these patients when they're having the stroke, when they're having the heart attack, when they're having the, unstable you know, uh, angina or the stable angina, when they're having a TIA, you can now understand what's going on in their body, okay? Or if they have a risk factor. You know, and what are the main risk factors? Well, smoking, age greater than 40, diabetes, 
high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and a family history of someone having a heart attack, you know, I would say, I would say younger than 40. You could say younger than 50. You could. I would say younger than 40. That's really young. Okay. So that's what we have here. That is what it is. Once the damage is done to a point with this lipids here, can't be undone. You got to lower that cholesterol. It's so important. This right here may be the most important video that I make in this section. Whether you're an EMT, advanced EMT, or paramedic, you have to watch this video. And I'll try to make a point of it. Now, watch this entire video. So here it is. This is fetal circulation. Every level on NREMT, you will need to know this. And this is one of the most common questions when we're talking about the foramenal valley, the ductus arteriosus. Let's talk about it. So the first thing we need to know is if you haven't watched my heart blood flow video and you do not understand normal heart blood flow, you need to go watch that video now. I have a heart blood flow video in the accelerator and I have one also in AMP. It's that important, okay? Um, so go watch it, it's in the AMP section, you can watch it here, okay? It's right in this tab. If you don't know heart blood flow cold yet, then you can't, this is not gonna make sense. So you gotta watch that first, then come back here. If you, did you do that? Okay, you're back? Okay, here we go. So I want you to think of the placenta as the fetal lungs. So when we talk about normal heart blood flow, what normally happens is, well, we have the SVC and the IVC. It's, you know, remember veins go towards the heart, arteries go away, and we have that blood coming back, right atrium, right ventricle, then it goes into the pulmonary circuit, and the lungs are over here. Remember that video? And the lungs have the oxygen. This is a totally different system with a fetal circulation. The lungs are not turned on yet. The child is in the womb and doesn't take a breath. So the lungs don't turn on so the child takes his first breath. This system will change to normal heart blood flow, like we talked about in the other video, as soon as they take their first breath. Okay, now here it is. So the placenta actually has the oxygen that we need to control our body. So what happens is we have umbilical arteries that actually go towards the placenta, and then we have umbilical veins that go away from the placenta, okay? It's a little different, I know, just hang with me, okay? So the umbilical arteries go into the placenta, the umbilical veins go away from the placenta, okay? So if you think about it, hang with me here. I know this is a little complicated, just hang with me here, please, and you can watch this video over and over. If we think about the placenta, like the lungs, you know how the pulmonary artery would go towards the lungs? Well, the umbilical artery with no O2 is going towards the placenta. It gets, it's gonna get its oxygen, and then it's gonna go to the umbilical veins, like in an adult or a newborn who took his first breath, it's going to go through the umbilical veins, like the pulmonary veins, back to the heart. Is that, see the parallel there? Okay, now, umbilical arteries, they come back, we go here, 
we have umbilical veins. They're going to go through, essentially, just to be uh, broad here, through the liver, through the abdominal section, until they end up in the inferior vena cava. When that blood is going up the inferior vena cava, we have oxygen and the lungs are turned off. So now we just got to get the blood out to the whole body. So we go into the right atrium. So here's what happens. Blood's going to be moving in two directions. Some of the blood's going to go through this hole right here called the foramenal valley that takes blood from the right atria to the left atria because we don't need to go to the pulmonary artery to go to the lungs, the lungs are off. Very little blood flow. Very little will end up going through that cycle. The majority is going through these holes, okay? So we go right atria over to uh, the left atria, okay? Now, some of that blood is gonna still go down normally to the right ventricle. And it's going to go up to the pulmonary artery, but what? it's not going to go all the way. The majority of it is going to take a stop through the ductus arteriosus, which is right here. Before we go all the way through that pulmonary circuit, it's going to kick off and go through the ductus arteriosus, which is literally going to take it from that pulmonary artery all the way through to the aorta. There's no going to the lungs. There's no pulmonary vein. There's no left atria. There's no left ventricle. We're gonna go straight from the right ventricle to the systemic circuit, which is the aorta. And we know the aorta's job is pumping it right out. So if we think about this, the right side of the heart is pretty important here. Because if our right side of our heart isn't doing very good because we have an issue, this doesn't look very good for the child. You understand that now? Now, I'm going to just go through it one more time. We've already done our job and blood returns to the placenta, which is, which is the oxygen center, the nutrient center for this child. So the umbilical arteries go towards the, long, the, um, the, lungs, the uh, placenta, okay? They get the O2 from the placenta, our nutrient center, goes out the umbilical veins, kind of like in an adult, we have the pulmonary and artery veins. Goes through abdominal, some goes off in the liver, yeah, we go through IVC, right uh, atrium. Then we have our foramenal valley, could it go whoop, left atria? The rest of it is going to go down to the right ventricle and then go up a little bit and then go, nope. Just kidding, I'm going to the ductus arteriosus and I'm gonna end up in the aorta from the right ventricle. There it is. I would implore you to watch this video and take notes at least two or three times. If you know heart blood flow, cold. If you know fetal circulation, cold. Those two videos alone are gonna take you from here to all the way up here. There you go. This right here is the first of our two-part little section here talking about hormonal control of our blood pressure. 
Now this has a lot to do with our glands and the kidneys. So let's talk about it, okay? Because kidneys have to do with the absorption and reabsorption of fluids, okay? So here it is. Now first, antidiuretic hormone is released by the posterior pituitary gland, okay? When blood volume is low, it's gonna cause kidneys to, to absorb and hang on to more water and also cause vasoconstriction. Now, one of the ways that ADH is released is through the presence of angiotensin II. So what happens is when we have low blood volume, an enzyme called renin will be released into circulation. What happens next, it gets quickly converted into angiotensinogen, which is basically an inactive substance, didn't do anything. And then it gets converted over to angiotensin II, which does something. It does vasoconstriction. Now what happens next is when angiotensin II is released, and it's doing its thing, causing vasoconstriction, it's actually gonna turn on aldosterone and ADH, which are both going to also do vasoconstriction, but really they're the players that are gonna really keep water on board to keep our blood volume at a good level, and not get too low. So these two work together. Now I have two more in the next video um, that I wanna talk about as well. We haven't covered yet, so let's dive into those two. Here we go. So here we have our final two players we're talking about hormonal regulation of our blood pressure. Now, very important. This top one, EPO, still like angiotensin II, okay? Like the other hormone we talked about in the last video. EPO has to do with blood pressure that is too low. Down here, ANP has to do with the blood pressure being too high. That's when it gets released. So hang with me. So in a scenario where your blood pressure is too low, EPO is released by the kidneys. What it does, it stimulates red blood cell production, which gives you greater oxygen capacity and increases blood volume. Pretty cool, right? Now, AMP, I'll say it again. AMP is the one, you're gonna get a test question on this. Which one of the hormones regulates your blood pressure when you have too high a blood pressure? AMP. Now here's what it is. I'll read it out to you here. When pressure's too high, reduces blood volume, it blocks ADH, it blocks aldosterone. We know ADH and aldosterone have to do with all that reuptake of the water and sodium. Okay. Promotes water loss, thirst loss. So it blocks this, it, it, look what it does. This is amazing, it's incredible, right? AMP, it's going to say, stop being thirsty, stop taking into water, let's get it out of here. And then it's gonna say, hey, artery, stop being so tense, let's relax them a little bit. And then it says, we're gonna make sure, really make sure, we're gonna block aldosterone, sodium, we're gonna block ADH water. And now we're gonna lower our blood pressure. Pretty cool? There it is. So there's a lot of talk about what exactly is an aneurysm. 
I'm going to define it for you here and make sure you understand it for life. Now, here it is. An aneurysm, all it is, is a bulging of any blood vessel. That's what an aneurysm is. It's a weak wall that is bulging out. That's an aneurysm, okay? A ruptured aneurysm means the wall is completely broken. That means literally all our layers are broken in the blood vessel, right? Now, an aneurysm starts, this will make a lot of sense to you because you understand this now, it starts with a tear in the tunica interna. And as it gets worse, that becomes a real big tear, and that's how we get into our peritoneal spaces, right? And most commonly, could be the retroperitoneal space. Okay, now here we go. We talked about bulging of a weak wall. Atherosclerosis, we talked about that in another video, is the main culprit because that's what makes the walls weak. Talked about that already. Now here in the bottom, let's talk about this. A thoracic aneurysm is pretty much sudden death. There's a tremendous amount of blood pressure and volume going through that circuit. Those patients, it's usually a catastrophic event. Now, a ruptured abdominal aneurysm, we call it a triple A. But that patient, they're going to present with abdominal pain, back or, or flank pain hypotension because they're bleeding out. And interestingly, if they're bleeding into the retroperitoneal back where they're, hey, what's retroperitoneal? The kidneys, there you go. Remember that? They're gonna have an urge to use the bathroom, defecate. Now, this is one of the biggest life threats, a AAA, that you'll ever see. By the time you get to someone who's had a thoracic aneurysm that's ruptured, they're probably going to be in arrest. There it is. These right here are the functions of the lymphatic system. So let's go through them. These are the main things. When you think about this system, you'll say, oh, that's what it does. Here it is. First, it's a fight and overcome disease by using lymphocytes. Now, lymphocytes, like we talked about earlier, are the specialized defender cells of this system that take care of abnormal cells, clean up debris, foreign invaders, overcome disease. Lymphocytes are the special defender cells of this system, okay? Now, number two, we're going to talk about something called specific versus nonspecific defenses in other videos, okay? But these are the, basically the modes and how we defend ourselves. Okay? Three, balancing body fluids. So blood volume is balanced between the blood volume, the circulatory system and the peripheral uh, vasculature versus the lymphatic system. Okay? There's a balance there. Can I give you a, a quick pearl? When someone has an overload of fluid uh, uh, and they have a high blood volume and they're in heart failure, they get lymphedema. That's a sign that there's too much fluid going on, okay? Now four is how we actually distribute uh, hormones and nutrients. So this system has a way of taking care of any 
hormones, nutrients, and even well, uh, some waste products. It will help get that to the origin site where it needs to go. So here are the main players um, we're talking about this system. This right here is the lymphatic organization. Now the first level we have is gonna be vessels. Remember, there's four parts to the lymphatic system. It's the big key here. How many parts? There's four. First is the vessels. The vessels is basically, think like blood vessels for the circulatory system. The lymphatic system has, the lymphatics, it's called, the lymphatics, that's the vessel of the lymphatic system. And it goes throughout the entire body, okay? It ends at the venous system, is where it ends, okay? Now, secondly, is the fluid. So, lymph, like the circulatory system, has blood. The lymphatic system has lymph. That's what actually goes around in the fluid inside the vessels, okay? Now, there's two more parts here. We have the lymphocytes, which are specialized defender cells. And the final piece is lymphoid tissues and organs. Now, some organs, we'll name a few here. The thymus, it's right around here. The spleen, right over here, okay? What about lymph nodes, the tonsils? We're gonna talk about all this in future videos, but these are the four parts of this system you need to know, these are the basics. Now here they are, the lymphocytes. Remember, lymphocytes are the main piece of this entire project, if you will, this entire uh, system, if you will, are lymphocytes. Okay, you're gonna hear a lot about these, you will get quizzed on these, which is why I'm making this video. Now, lymphocytes, they're broken up into three main types. T cells, which stands for thymus, okay, relating to the thymus, which is a organ we're gonna talk about later on. Bone marrow, deriving B cells, and NK, natural killer cells. That sounds like they're gonna kill some cells. <laughs> okay, all right. So here it is. Now, let's talk about this. The T cells make up 80% of all this, okay? Now, there's three different types of T cells. Cytotoxic, are the ones, think of like the infantry, they're gonna do a direct attack on any foreign invader. The helper T cells are gonna stimulate, while the suppressor T cells are gonna inhibit. Those are the keys, okay? Now with B cells, they make up about 10 to 15%, okay? And the main one here we're gonna look at is plasma cells. So these plasma cells are the ones that actually create antibodies, okay? They have to do with antibodies, okay? The NK cells are called the natural killer cells. These cells do something very important, which is called immunological surveillance. They're the ones constantly scanning the body for any changes, cancer cells, foreign invaders, animal-looking cells that are being developed, okay? So these we're looking at here, these are the natural killer cells that will go out and attack as well. And they're always doing, this is the buzzword, immunological surveillance. You'll see that too. 
What you probably want to know about is what does it mean when you have a swollen lymph node? So let's start with that first, okay? A swollen lymph node, what that means is it's a possibility. It could be benign or it could be something. You should get it checked out, okay? Now here's what it is. If a patient asks you about this, there could be some sort of bacteria or viral infection. It could be cancer. It also could be an endocrine disorder. Just want you to know that if you ever get a patient that says, I have a bunch of swollen lymph nodes. Well, those are the possibilities. We have to get it checked out, okay? Obviously, do your vitals and do what you need to do with your patients. Now, with lymph nodes, there are two main things. The first thing is that lymph nodes are put around the body in certain locations to make sure that the lymph hits these nodes in order to be purified before ending up in the venous system, okay? So think of the lymph node as purifying centers throughout your body, okay? If they're swollen, that could mean that there's a bacteria, viral, it could be a cancer, or it could be finally an endocrine disorder going on, or it could be benign, okay? But there's the main uh, details. You gotta know when to lift notes. So right here we talked about earlier are the types of defenses, but I want to categorize these that you're going to see when you're in class. So first we have non-specific defenses, then we have specific defenses. So non-specific defenses will defend against nothing in particular, meaning there's not one infection or one virus or one bacteria, right? What it is, it's a defense against everything, okay? That includes like our hair and our skin would be a physical barrier defense. The skin doesn't just protect against one infection and it will go against all, okay? Now, specific is different. That is gained through exposure to a bacteria or a virus or infection or whatever it may be. And then that immunity, it can be developed. The defense can be developed against that one particular thing. I've seen that before. I'm gonna go out to that. That's specific defense, okay? Now, here are the types of nonspecific. Physical barriers, inflammation and fever, uh, immunological surveillance. Remember, the NK cells are the ones that do the immunological surveillance, always checking all the tissues in the body to see what's going on, okay? Inflammation and fever, we're gonna talk about later on, okay? And then this has to do with the lymphocytes, with specific defenses, seeing, oh, I see that, if I see it again, I'm gonna attack it. There it is. These right here are our main players with the lymphatic system. We talked about specialized cells, well now we're gonna level up and we're gonna talk about the glands and organs, okay? So the first gland I wanna talk about is the thymus. The thymus is a pink gland that lies posterior to our sternum, here's our sternum, posterior, behind, back of our sternum, okay? And the thymus, it reaches its maximum size as we grow into puberty. As we get older, we get smaller and smaller and smaller. Thus, if you think about this, what does the thymus do? Well, the thymus actually produces T-cells, okay? Remember, T-cells have to do with the thymus. So it produces, it uses the function, and then releases when they're ready to be 
put out to circulation in the lymphatic system right here, uh, the T cells. Now, the thymus gets smaller and smaller as we get older, meaning this is maybe one of the reasons why as we get older, our immune system isn't as strong. Food for thought. Now, the second piece is our spleen. Now, our spleen sits, stomachs are right here, right around this section. Should be our left upper quadrant section, okay? The spleen, anytime you have uh, get any trauma to the flank or anything like that, you want to really think about a spleen injury. If the spleen ruptures, just a quick tip, if you have any blood expelling into the space, you can actually get a left shoulder pain when they get hit here. This happens about 40% of the time with spleen injuries. A quick tip, I have to throw it in because anytime I talk about spleen, I bring it up. Now, what does it do? It's going to filter the blood. It's going to store iron from recycled red blood cells. And it can actually call on T and B cells circulating in the blood to actually attack anything that needs to be dealt with, right? Any foreign invaders, okay? So here it is. Thymus and spleen are your two main players in this system. Fever is a normal response in our body's immune system. But we have to make sure it stays in check and doesn't go too wild. So let's talk about this. So in the body, there's a certain protein. It's called pyrogens. These pyrogens act on the hypothalamus, which is basically the body's thermostat, the hypothalamus. And those pyrogens raise the body temperature with the goal of increasing metabolism, which will make the cells move faster, which can help repair the body faster. So that's a good thing. If it stays then you know, under 103, all right? If we start to get a fever that's too high, which it would be, I would say would be 103 to 107, this is where we can actually have physical stress on the body and have to damage ourselves. So this is what we have here, okay? We've pretty much gone over everything on this board, but this is what fever has to do with. The goal is to speed the body up to get more done, which is why you may get a fever, okay? It's, it's a, it can be a good thing, but it's gotta be within a normal limit. This is what fever is all about. And then here are your numbers. Technically, anything greater than 99 is a fever. There are five main functions of the respiratory system. This is an overview of what the system has to do with. So the first most important thing is that the respiratory system takes air and it's gonna exchange that with gas exchange. That's our oxygen and carbon dioxide. So air exchanging with circulating blood, oxygen and carbon dioxide, that's number one. Number two, well, it's just the movement of air itself throughout the system. And we're gonna talk about the anatomy of the system in a little bit. Third is talking about pathogen defense, invader defense. That it's a physical barrier to actually getting into our you know, bloodstream, of course, okay? Now, two more, sound and speech. Well, I'm speaking right now thanks to the voice box, the larynx, okay? And finally, the fifth piece here we're gonna talk about is smell, which everyone forgets, but we have a voice box, we speak, and we have to smell as well. That's number five. 
So these are our five things that we're going to discuss in this chapter. I want to show you the pathway that inhaled air is going to go through. Now, the big first question, you see here I have nose, so a star, and mouth with a question mark. What am I going at? Well, the normal process of breathing is going to be breathing in through your nose. That's where air is going to come from. Could you breathe through your mouth? You could, but it's not proper. Okay? So the nose is going to be our primary activity. So we're going to talk about it in that way inside of AMP. Okay? Now, the nose, as air comes in through our external nares and it comes through, it's going to lead back eventually to what we call the nasopharynx, the nasal cavities in there as well. Okay? Now, this is the upper airway, it's the lower airway. So here are the main players. We're going to go from the nares, the nose essentially, nasal cavity to our nasal pharynx. Okay? We have here an oral pharynx and we have a laryngeal pharynx. Okay? So that's these three pieces make up our pharynx. All right? Going down from the nose, oral cavity, moving down, okay? Moving down to our almost to the area of our voice box, which is our larynx, okay? So the larynx includes the glottic opening, okay? Epiglottis, okay? Third, we have our thyroid and cricoid cartilage, our rings, which you can feel on yourself as well. And the vocal cords, our actual true vocal cords, how I'm speaking to you right now. So once we hit the bottom of that larynx section, that's it with our upper airway. So what does this mean? Well, I just want to tell you, if an infection comes down to here, we're now in the lower airway. If it's in here, it's upper airway. We don't want anything to go down here, okay? Now, here it is. The trachea is also known as the windpipe. It's the first piece of our lower airway. We then move on to the bronchi. Now, here's the main thing with the bronchi. We have two main stem bronchi, the right main stem and the left main stem. After the main stem, we break into secondary and then tertiary bronchi as it goes down until it ends up in the bronchioles, okay? So the bronchioles are right here. Now the bronchioles is where we talk about the asthma patient having constricted bronchioles and then albuterol dilating those bronchioles. That's the constrictor dilation part, those bronchioles, okay? The alveoli right here, that's what we talk about the alveolar duct, and we talk about surfactant. That's our place we're going to find that, okay? Now, the alveoli is going to lead, not technically in this section, but on the other side, when we talk about the circulatory system, is our capillaries. The big player here is alveoli, is where gas exchange occurs. In the alveoli, through the transfer of those capillaries, that's where all the magic happens, if you will, okay? So... Here it is, this is the flow of it. Um, uh, it was gonna be another video here where I'm gonna give you a worksheet on how to label some of this stuff. I'll see you there. So I've drawn out a normal capnogram. We're talking about entitled CO2. Now, I have other videos in the paramedic sections talking about this, but this is still part of AMP, so I, I do wanna bring it up. Okay, now here it is. Now, it's multiple things I've laid out here. You can see A, B, 1, 2, C, D, E, uh, 
what's that over there? Well, we're going to talk about it. So here we go. So the first thing is what, what is, what are we even looking at here? Well, what we're looking at here is someone who's inhaling and exhaling. Okay. Now think about this. What if patients inhale? What, what do I inhale? What do you inhale? Oxygen. What do we expire? Carbon dioxide. Right. So if I'm talking about this whole thing's talking about carbon dioxide. I'm talking about someone exhaling. This is, a, a, this is correct. So here I am at the bottom here, okay? So I, I call this section the AB section, okay? This is, you can see here the late inspiration. You can see here coming in. This is a start right here of early exhalation. There's no carbon dioxide at all at this. Excuse me. There's no carbon dioxide at this stage right here. Okay, we're at zero basically. Okay, this is all zero. Okay. Now, as we go up here, you can see at the B point, we start early exhalation as we move up. Okay. So now CO2 starts to appear and we go straight up in phase two. Okay. You can also call this the BC section, whatever you want to call it. Okay. Now, as we get here, this right here, this right section here, it's called the plateau. This is constant CO2. Okay, this is the full exhalation moving. Okay. Now over here this is our end tidal CO2 points right over here. Okay. Now why is it called end tidal CO2? It's the end of that volume. Okay. It's the end of the exhalation. Okay. Now here, as soon as we start to go down, we start. As it goes down, 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 bracket zero basically again, there's a respiratory pause. Okay. So this right here is your normal capnogram. Inspirations right after our entitled CO2. Now, again, you may need to watch this video once or twice to get it down cold. I have another video in the paramedic section that talks about all the different entitled CO2, capnography, stuff like that. I would go check the bottom of that section. We talk about all that stuff there too, but this is a normal capnogram for everybody. There it is. I've put together this video so that you can understand hypoxic drive. Now, here we go. Hypoxic drive, what it is, is only found in advanced, severe respiratory disease like emphysema, chronic bronchitis, it's COPD. Okay, that's what we're talking about. Now, a normal patient works on a respiratory drive. What that means is right here, okay? Now I'll show you. This side is normal, this side is our COPD patient. So respiratory drive is controlled by the PCO2, the amount of carbon dioxide in our blood, when the body sees an increase of the carbon dioxide levels in the blood, what happens? We're going to stimulate respirations. When we see a decrease of carbon dioxide in the blood, we're going to inhibit respirations. That's under a normal patient. But here's what happens with COPD. What happens is the body gets used to the state of chronic hypercapnia, which means that your CO2 levels are chronically high. 
And as it gets it more advanced, the body gets used to it. So the body says this. The body says, you know what? These levels are too high. I can't go off of this. I'm going to be stimulating my respirations all day long. You can't do that. So what it does, the body says, you know what? Let's change it and let's use hypoxic drive. And let's base it off our oxygen levels. Okay? So what this means is right over here. You can see here. Now, a COPD patient runs off chronic hypercapnia, okay? So their PCO2 is normally very high. It switches now, instead of being regulated off of the PCO2, it's regulated off the PO2, which means if you give your patients supplemental oxygen, that's going to cause their oxygen levels in the blood to rise. And because they're running off a hypoxic drive, they're now going to start to inhibit their respirations because they have too much oxygen. Where they're normally, when their oxygen levels go down, they're supposed to breathe more. You see where I'm going? It's a hypoxic drive. So, what do we do with a COPD patient who can't breathe? What do we do? Do we not give them oxygen because of this? No. This is something, though, you should know about to not overload a COPD patient with oxygen. Our goal with a COPD patient is very simple. The family, a bystander, the patient, if they're unresponsive, you're doing way more things and there's no one there. You're doing way more things than worrying about this, okay? If they're awake and talking to you, they are going to know if they have COPD what their normal oxygen saturation normally is. We want to get them back to that and not go above it, back to their normal. That's the goal. And this is hypoxic drive. There it is. Carbon monoxide poisoning is a catastrophic emergency because you don't see it coming. It's odorless, so you can't smell it. It's tasteless, so you can't taste it. You don't see it coming. Three ways it usually happens. Automobile fumes, that's why I always gotta open the garage. Second is uh, improperly ventilated heating systems. And the third piece with CO is a enclosed structure fire, okay? So with this, the big thing about CO, which is carbon monoxide, is that it has a 200 times affinity to hemoglobin, which we learned about how that all works, about buying oxygen in another chapter through this series. It's 200 times the affinity to the hemoglobin. So it literally, think about it like this. Imagine it kicking off oxygen and all the hemoglobin saturated heavily with CO. Oxygen goes down, you put my hypoxic, and here's what happens. First, you become altered with rapid breathing, and then later on, you're unresponsive in a coma. This is why, especially in the fire service, this is so dangerous. There it is. This is what is measured when you take an ABG, or arterial blood gas. Now, I'm going to go through each one, but here's the big thing. 
Now, arterial blood gas, why are we even talking about it? Why is it even taken? It's taken so we can see these great numbers when we're talking about a severe respiratory distress patient so we know what's going on deeply inside the body. It's different than what we get from the normal blood work. So we have to actually take a needle and we have to actually go into someone's artery and draw blood out. Okay, and it hurts. It hurts. A vein doesn't really hurt that much. An artery has a lot of sensory around that and it can hurt. Now, the radial artery, brachial, or the femoral artery is going to be our choice. Now, here it is. First, we have our PO2, which is our partial pressure of oxygen. Secondly, you're going to get your partial pressure of CO2. Next, you're getting the pH of the blood. Next, you're getting the bicarb level, which is HCO3. And finally, the OHG, that's going to be your hemoglobin. Now, this is a great deal of information for that ER staff or EMS staff. Depending on where you are, who knows what people are doing. Um, this is what you want to look at. There it is. Hey, everyone. We're back with the respiratory section. I may even put this in the paramedic section as well. Now, if you are somebody who is an EMT or advanced EMT student, this is watching for fun. Um, if you're a paramedic student, you would watch this because this could be a question that comes up. Um, not often, but this is getting to be a cornerstone of your paramedic care. You're going to go over ventilators at some point, so why not get a little lesson right now? Here we go. So ventilator modes. Now, there's how many things? There's four things that each ventilator is going to track, and there's three main types of ventilators you need to know about. So I'll say it again. There's how many? Four things the ventilator is going to look for and three types. So here they are. Now, I put a check here because everyone knows respiratory rate. So we check that off. Okay. Now, tidal volume. I'm going to give you a tip, and I'm going to say it with you here. And here's, the, here's my quick tip. It is not a rule, okay, but a quick tip if you get in trouble. Usually, the tidal volume of the patient should be 10 to 15 mLs per kilogram of body weight. It's not a rule, but it's a quick tip if you get in trouble. Now, the O2 concentration is the FiO2. That's how it's measured. You can see C, uh, CMH2O is going to be our PEEP. Okay? Now, what is PEEP? Well, it's the pressure at the end of expiration. Okay? That's what it is. So the pressure at the end of our expiration is our PEEP. Now, there's three types, there's three types of ventilators. Now, here's how I break it down, okay? One, which we're going to talk about, I'm going to go through it, okay? So, I'm going to give you a quick tip here. The first type, I always think of as the full control ventilator. The patient is not breathing at all, they're apneic, they're not breathing, so we're going to control everything with to do with the patient. No breathing of the patient, full ventilator. I like to call it the full control ventilator. Now, it's called the CMV setting on the ventilator. Because when, when you have a ventilator, you can have different setups, okay? What kind of patient do you have? Like any other device. Now, I put a few buzzwords here because you might hear this out in the field. Put them in AC mode. Put them in assist mode. The proper is ACMV, okay? Now, here it is. This section, I like to consider this section, and here's what it actually does as well. It's going to assist 
with the volume of the breathing of the patient, okay? If the patient tries to take a breath, it's gonna assist it through and give it an extra breath, okay? Now, and I'm gonna go through these just to make sure we've covered you good. Now, the, the final piece here is the SIMV. And this one is what I like to call the intermittent, intermittent uh, ventilator. So what that means, we all know what that means. Well, patient breathe, then I'm gonna breathe. Patient breathe, then ventilator. The patient breathe, the ventilator. So it's intermittent breathing, okay? So let's just go through this. Now I'm, I'm gonna read these out to you just, just to make sure it hits home. CMV, used usually in apneic patients, set by EMS rate, full control. ACMV, AC mode assist control, you can see here, you set the minimum rate on AC mode, the minimum rate. The patient tries to breathe, an extra breath is delivered. And finally down here at SIMV, there's no breath assistance as far as volumes or extra breathing, okay? But times the breathing in between patient breathing. So patient breathe, now I'm a ventilator. Patient breathe, now I'm a ventilator. There it is. Here we have the six functions of the digestive system, okay? Now, here we go. We go from ingestion to mechanical processing, the digestion, secretion, absorption, excretion. Now, let's break it down. Ingestion is when food enters the mouth, simple as that. Mechanical processing is how the tongue, teeth, and later the GI tract manipulates and moves around that food bolus. Now the third piece is right here, digestion. Okay, now what that means is the chemical breakdown of food into small organic molecules that the body can then absorb into the digestive epithelium. Remember the epithelium chapter? Well, it's, here it is, okay? Secretion, talks about water, acids, and enzymes. Absorption, talks about electrolytes and vitamins. Excretion is removal of waste. So here is the functions of the system that we're gonna talk about. Here we go. So here are the swallowing steps. Now, one thing you're going to talk about a lot is the process of swallowing. So you're going to hear, now, the whole part of the digestive system is to take this food. Let's say you're eating a piece of chicken, for example. This piece of chicken uses teeth to tear and shred that chicken into what we call a bolus of food, okay, which is basically a digestible portion that is wet enough to get into the esophagus, go down it, and to the stomach, be able to then move to the stomach process, which we're gonna talk about later on, okay? Now, here are the steps of swallowing. First, there's an oral phase. Your teeth in this oral phase are gonna tear and shred whatever it is you're eating. Then, your tongue, the other recept receptors in your, in your mouth, will realize it's time to swallow. What's gonna happen next is that food's gonna go up against the hard palate and be pushed back into the pharynx. Then we enter the pharyngeal phase. The pharyngeal phase is the involuntary 
swallowing reflex. This is the subconscious swallowing section here. So this is more conscious in the oral phase. Once we get to here, it just kind of starts to go through on its own. Now the esophageal phase is when the bolus enters the esophagus and slides down, okay? Now, final phase is when the bolus actually hits the stomach. And this is how we get, you know, for example, uh, a piece of chicken <laughs> to end up in our stomach. We gotta turn it into a bolus. There it is. This chart right here is gonna explain gastric activity in the stomach. So here we go. So gastric activity in the stomach, there's three steps. So here's something pretty crazy, I'll tell you. As soon as we smell, as soon as we, well taste of course, makes sense. Or as soon as we uh, see food. So we don't have to be eating it yet. We could smell it, we could see it, we could taste it. Just seeing food or smelling food causes the CNS to start the gastric activity in the stomach. We may not even be eating it though. Think about it. This is called the cephalic phase. So this prepares the stomach to actually receive the food contents because it smells it, it must be coming. Pretty crazy, okay? Now, the gastric phase is the second phase. This is where food, which is a bolus, called a bolus at this point, enters the stomach. This bolus is going to be changing names into something called chyme, okay? This chyme is gonna be moved through into the small intestine throughout, okay? Now, this happens by producing a hormone, okay? It's called gastrin. So the gastrin hormone, once that is released, what we have is this. We get stomach contractions, which churn and turn this bolus into a chyme. This chyme is then passed off to the small intestine. And this is the final phase, the intestinal phase. And we go through the small intestine. Eventually, we we'll end up in the large intestine. And we go from there. So, there it is. Now, there are over 200 functions of the liver. Uh, but these are the three most important ones here. Now, I'm gonna, I, all I've done is put the words here. I'm gonna explain to you here what this is about. So first we have metabolic regulation of the liver. What does that mean? Well, what it means is this. The liver is first to absorb any nutrients, any uh, toxins, any excess. That is gonna be the first most primary function of the liver. So before it even gets to the circulating bloodstream, it's gotta go through the liver. Remember, the liver is going to metabolize everything first. Okay, that's why you think about an aging liver, it goes through a lot of stuff, right? But the liver is almost, do you think about the, the metabolic regulation? It's like our first offense, but also our first absorption point of nutrients. So that's the first thing I want you to know. First absorption point, but also gonna take care of toxins before it reaches the bloodstream. That's number one. Now number two, we talk about hematological regulation. Well, the second piece here, this is a two-part piece. 
when we're talking about the hematologic regulation. The first piece is I want to give you two examples. One with the immune system, and two, we talk about regulating glucose and insulin. So if we have a blood sugar that's too high, what the liver will do is store glycogen, okay? Because we don't need it right now, let's store it up. It's regulating, okay, of the bloodstream. Now, what if our blood sugar is too low? That storage, it will release it, right? So the liver is storing and releasing depending on what's going on in the bloodstream, okay? Hema, blood, okay? Also has to do with the part of the, uh, the immune response as well. Again, it helps out with that, okay, in all of the concentrations. So this is a big way I think about the liver. The easiest way to remember it, I, I for my students and for you here, is talking about the, the storing of glucose and then the, I'm sorry, of glycogen, and then the release of glycogen on blood sugar levels. That's how you remember the second part. Now, the third part is we talk about bile. Now, I talked about bile earlier. We talked about, okay, what if we have chyme, has a lot of lipids, protein. Bile is going to go help out to get that process done in the digestive system. So bile is going to help out with that. It gets released right into our small intestine. So bile production is part of the liver as well. So those are the three main things that the liver is going to do. It's going to metabolize first, meaning that any toxins, any nutrients, it's going to pick up on it. Two, it's going to help out regulate what's going on in the bloodstream. I gave you the, the uh, glucose example. And the third piece is the production of bile that can get injected into the small intestine to help out with the process of digestion. There it is. So now we're moving on to the gallbladder. Now the gallbladder, essentially, I want you to think about it as the liver's best friend. We talked about bile with the liver. Now the gallbladder has one job, not 200. Its one job is to be the main storage of bile, okay? So we talk about secreting bile and storing bile. Okay, that's gonna be the gallbladder, okay? Now remember I talked about CCK hormone is going to release the bile into the duodenum to help out with digestion, okay? Now, if bile salts get too concentrated, they're too concentrated inside of the bile ducts, what can happen is a gallstone, okay? Now, a gallstone presents with right upper quadrant pain. It, there can be right shoulder pain as well, that's referred pain, okay? Very, very high in pain scale, okay? Think about a kidney stone, how much it hurts. Same with a gallstone. You may think it's a heart attack because it's, it's an upper quadrant pain. Not gonna hurt to do an EKG. I'm just telling you that try upper quadrant, okay? Right shoulder pain. Now, the other thing about it is you'll get nausea, vomiting, and you'll get cool, clammy, pale skin. But if you have that bile leakage or the gallbladder was to erupt, you might get a septic patient because of the leakage into the, into the peritoneal cavity. Now, if that happens, you're gonna, not gonna have cool clammy skin, you're gonna have warm skin. So are they distended, right? That's gonna be the question there. So just a quick tip, but any right upper quadrant pain acutely could be a gallstone.
There it is. After food is turned into chyme from the stomach, we then are going to reach to the small intestine. Now, the small intestine, if I give you one pearl, the small intestine is where the bulk, about 90% of absorption of nutrients occurs. The other 10% will occur in the large intestine later on. So we go from the stomach to the small intestine. Okay, so now we're in the small intestine and we are called chyme. Okay, so here we are. Now, what happens is the first section, the duodenum, is remember, it's the closest to the stomach, it's, it's connected, it's coming. Stomach links off to here, okay? Duodenum, okay? It's also the loop of it encircles the pancreas. From remember, the majority of it, the pancreas is on this side, and but a little bit comes in over onto the right as well, on the upper. Now, the next piece here, our second piece, is actually the area where most of the absorption occurs in this area right here. This is very important. And the third piece right here meets up with the first part of the large intestine. So we go one, two, three. Now one more pearl about the small intestine. The small intestine actually makes up the bulk of our, uh, so if you say, what's the bulk of the, uh, for lack of a better word, stuff inside of our abdominal cavity? It actually is a small intestine is a large amount of space in our abdominal cavity. And remember, it's essentially is straight in the middle of our, of our cavity. That's something to remember as well. The large intestine, which you're gonna see in your worksheets, is around, in the middle is our small intestine. When people talk about the mesentery, it's a sheet that kind of lays over the small intestine. Um, this is what they're talking about, the mesentery. This is the small intestine area. Just a quick tip. Now here we are, the large intestine. Now the large intestine basically makes a trip around, which we're gonna talk about. I want you to remember this for the rest of your life. Watch this video a few times, you'll have it down cold. Now, the main part of the large intestine is that the large intestine is gonna reabsorb water. It's about 10% of the vitamins, that the absorption. The other 90, remember, is in the small intestine. And then finally here, the goal is to get chyme from the small intestine and then turn it over into the compacted into feces. Now here it is. Right here, we have our, our last piece, right, of our small intestine coming in, okay? The ileum here coming in, right? Now as it comes here, we have the ileo cecal valve right here, this valve right here that brings the chime in to this, this quite large space called the cecum. Now the cecum is gonna compact that and turn it into feces. And we start that absorption process. Now the appendix just loops off right here, okay? Now we have the ascending going up, the ascending colon, the transverse colon, the descending colon, the sigmoid colon. This right here, this sigmoid colon 
is diverticulitis land. This is where diverticulitis and losis all happens. The descending and into the, most importantly into the sigmoid. Right here, my left hand, left lower quadrant pain. It could be commonly diverticulitis, which is little pockets in the sigmoid colon get inflamed with feces. The rectum, we go out and then into the anus, and there is our large intestine. These right here are your GI hormones. So let's break them down step by step. Remember, when there is a hormone, there has to be something that happens, a stimulation effect for it to be released. And then it, there's a reason why it's being released and a target where it's being released and origin where it's being released. So here we go. So first we have gastrin. Now gastrin is released by the CNS when we smell or we taste or we see food, okay? CNS or food just happens to arrive. Well, it's getting released. It's all in the stomach with gastrin. Now, it's gonna stimulate the production of acids to, let's, we gotta break this down. We gotta turn a bolus into chyme, okay? Now, secretin, as chyme appears in the duodenum, the big key here is this. When you think secretin, I want you to think that something with a high acid, chyme with high acidity, is lowering the pH of the duodenum because it's so acidic, we need extra help from the pancreas, from the stomach, from the liver. So what we, what we get is an alkaline buffer from the, the pancreas. Bile actually gets secreted in to the duodenum to help out with this process because the pH of the duodenum is becoming, it's going down because it's so acidic. That's the issue. We have an acidic chyme, CCK. Now, if chyme appears with a lot of lipids and a lot of protein in the duodenum, here's what we get. We get the release of some pancreatic enzymes. We get a contraction of the gallbladder. We relax the bile ducts. And because we now have lipids and proteins, the CNS goes, all right, well, let's relax our hunger. We, we, have, some good, we have some good food here. Let's relax our hunger, okay? Now, GIP. Now, what if chyme enters with a lot of fat and a lot of glucose. Well, is it in the water? Well, what do you think is going to happen if we have a lot of fat and a lot of glucose? We're going to tell the body that it's time to release insulin, right? We have a lot of glucose, a lot of fat. Let's, let's do the insulin. So there it is. And obviously, we're going to inhibit that gastric secretion, okay? Because it's already gone through the system. Now we're over here, okay? We're in the water. So there it is, folks. These are your main hormones. Gastrin, think stomach, think I have food, it, it's gotta be broken down. Secretin, remember, think, wow, it's pretty acidic chyme, we gotta help out, okay? CCK, that's gonna be your proteins, it's gonna be your lipids, and this is gonna be your fat and glucose. We gotta release insulin. Glucose, remember in our other chapters, glucose, insulin, go hand in hand. There you go. What I want to discuss now 
is esophagitis. And I want to discuss what that is and a hiatal hernia, what that is. And I'm going to show you an illustration and we're going to do it live. So here it is. So the first part, anything that ends, like I tell you, in an itis is an inflammation of whatever we're talking about. So esophagitis is the esophagus that is inflamed. Now, here's what happens. The esophagus going to the stomach, there's a, a sphincter, okay, that goes from the esophagus to the stomach. It's called the lower esophageal sphincter. Now, what happens is if that becomes weak, that becomes too relaxed, get strong gastric acids rise up into the esophagus. When that happens, it erodes and inflames the esophagus, causing, oh, I have acid reflux, oh, I have heartburn symptoms, right? Now, that over time can cause the inflammation of the esophagus. That is completely different but than what we're talking about down here, which is hiatal hernias. The reason I'm putting them together is because it always gets confused. This is completely different. So here it is. A hiatal hernia, let me put this down. A hiatal hernia is when an abdominal organ, it's the stomach, okay, slips into the thoracic cavity through the esophageal hiatus. Now, what is this about? Okay. Well, I have my diaphragm, it sits right around here, okay. Well, my esophagus needs to get to my stomach. There's a hole in there called the esophageal hiatus, okay? This esophageal hiatus, you can see right here, Here's my, this is my diaphragm, okay? This is my stomach. So this is normal. Now, here's what happens when we have a hiatal hernia. This stomach is gonna protrude like this. And a piece of the stomach is going to go right through it to say, here's the rest of the esophagus. I'm going to have a piece of stomach coming out of here. So this is all stomach right here. And it protrudes through here. So I got puffy stomach hanging out above there. That's what we end up having. And it's going to cause immense pain if it's bad enough. And you're saying, well, what do you mean bad enough? Well, here's what it is. Some of these go unnoticed for a while. And then when it starts to show a little symptoms, you go to the doctor, oh, you have an hiatal hernia. Some are just really bad right away and they get noticed right away. So that's gonna depend on your patient, but something to keep in mind, hiatal hernias. Many people have heard about it. Let's talk about ascites. So you may know it's just a swollen abdomen. Okay, well, what does that mean? Well, here's what it means. Our organs inside our abdominal cavity, it's called the peritoneal cavity. Inside that cavity, there's a thin lining, and that lining has fluid in it, peritoneal fluid. If that fluid is off balance and there's an overload of fluid, your abdominal region swells, and it's called ascites. So what ascites presents like is the patient may complain of chronic heartburn, indigestion, low back pain, abdominal pain, a swollen abdomen because their organs are being squeezed and pressed, okay? Now the causes, uh, liver and kidney disease and heart failure, think of patients that have too much over 
flow of fluid may have it. There it is. So right here we have our urinary system functions. Now we've already talked about the digestive system. That's where we take a bolus into chyme and then feces and out of the body along that pathway absorbing nutrients. The urinary system has to do with fluid. So let's talk about it. So first, the urinary system does a lot more than that. So first, it's going to regulate our blood volume. And we're going to talk a lot about that later on in the chapters, regulating blood volume. Two is regulating the concentration of ions is going to be number two. Number three here is stabilizing blood pH, talk about acid base. We're going to talk about that. Okay. And then four is conserving nutrients. This is the last stop to conserve nutrients on the way out. Just like we talked about with digestive, this is urinary. Here we go. So now I want to discuss the actual pathways of urine throughout the urinary system so you remember it cold. This will probably be on a lot of your quizzes. Now, first, we have four players here, four main players that we're going to discuss. So first, we have the kidney. The kidney is going to be responsible for urine production, okay? Next, the ureter. And the ureter is going to transport urine between the kidneys towards the bladder, okay? Now, the bladder is going to temporarily store urine until it is ready to be expelled. And then finally, the urethra is going to flow urine outside the body. These are our four players in the urinary system as far as the pathways that urine will take from the kidneys throughout. There it is. This right here is the renin-angiotensin system. Now, real quick, the renin-angiotensin system is used in the body when blood volume is too low. Down here, the opposing system using AMP, that hormone, that is when blood volume is too high. So here's what happens, okay? Renin is released. Renin then turns into inactive angiotensinogen. Then angiotensin 1, angiotensin 2. Once we have angiotensin 2, we now have something to work with because our blood volume is too low. We need to bring it up. So what angiotensin 2 does is it causes vasoconstriction at the, in the inside of the capillary beds. That raises blood pressure. That's great when our blood volume is too low. Good. What it also does is it stimulates the release of ADH and aldosterone, epinephrine, and norepinephrine. Epinephrine and norepinephrine are going to raise your blood pressure, obviously, and increase cardiac activity. Now, aldosterone is going to help by reabsorbing sodium. ADH is going to help out by reabsorbing sodium and reabsorbing more water. So angiotensin II hooks up with ADH and aldosterone all together to bring our pressure up because our volume is too low. Think about it. The body is going to let's hang on to our fluids and let's raise our pressure because our volume is too low. When our volume is too high, 
on the other side of this line, other side of the train tracks, okay? A and P. When it's too high, a few things happen. First, we tell the body, okay, let's increase water loss in the urine. Let's get rid of, let's get rid of water because our, our fluids are too high. The second thing that it does as well is it says, let's stop reabsorbing water. And the third most important thing that AMP does, what AMP does is it tells the body to inhibit renin, inhibit this whole system from being turned on. There it is. Now, like some of the sections, this is, this is mainly a paramedic level topic. Um, I have another video that goes over this in a little bit of a different way over in the paramedic accelerator. It's near the bottom of it. I talked about it in earlier videos, um, but I wanted to make it another well, way of looking at it with this, with this little chart here. So here it is. So acid-based disorders, what we have here is we can have an acidosis, we can have an alkalosis. It can be respiratory based, it can be metabolic based. So let's talk about it. So here we go, let's go line by line. So respiratory acidosis is when the pH is too low. It's below 7.35. When that happens, what we have with our patients is they are not vent being ventilated properly, okay? There's a buildup of CO2, okay? It's hypoventilation as a buildup of CO2. So what we gotta do if we have a patient, we need to improve their ventilations, maybe at the bronchodilator to get them to breathe better, okay? In this case, they need to breathe a little faster, okay? Uh, and the other case is gonna be, they might need a mechanical spork, a BVM, okay? So that's gonna be respiratory acidosis. And now I'm just gonna go to the other respiratory to see the difference. Uh, respiratory alkalosis is too high. So that's 7.45. Now with the actual respirations, it actually kind of goes with it because the respirations, respiratory rate is too high in this case. So what's happening in this case is we are in our body, we have too low a levels of CO2, okay? There's, we're too low on our CO2 here and we're causing hyperventilation, okay? So here we're hypoventilating, here we're hyperventilating. Now, a way to remember that, which I think could help you, would be this is too low of a pH. And that's hypo, which means low. This is too high of a pH. This is hyper. That could help you, okay? Now, we have to reduce the respiratory rate. And if we do that, we need to, we need to get their CO2 up, okay? So hopefully it will rise. Now, metabolic acidosis. We know if the acidosis is lower, so 7.35, uh, what we're gonna have in this case is a buildup of metabolic acid and we're losing that bicarbonate. So what we need to do here is basically we need to give bicarbonate if possible and figure out the primary reasons of why this happened. Now the metabolic alkalosis, if it's seven point, a little higher than 7.45, it's not a great big emergency. If it gets a little higher, 7.50, 7.55, especially. It gets really high. Um, let me just tell you real quick. Uh, vomiting and fluid loss is what's gonna cause this. You might, you may, uh, EMS may not do this, but in the hospital, you would give ammonium 
uh, chloride to this patient. This is probably the most rare one that you're going to see, a metabolic alkalosis. Um, these are going to be more similar as far as what you might see on a day-to-day -day basis with a patient. And with our end title, we're going to be able to see a lot of this stuff. Again, um, here's what I want you to do. I want you to watch this video over two, three times, and then I want you to follow up if you're a paramedic student. Go watch the paramedic accelerator while I go over this as well. Combine them together, you're going to have this down cold. There it is. I want to briefly discuss kidney stones and UTI. Now, the most common kidney stone is a buildup of, that, of calcium that creates this crystal formation and it turns into a stone. Now, there are different types of kidney stones, but first let me just tell you how they present. So, remember the kidneys are retroperitoneal. That means they're behind everybody else in our abdominal uh, cavity. They're behind that abdominal cavity, they're retroperitoneal. Okay, now, with that being said, that's why you get mid-low back pain and you get flank pain with a kidney stone, right? Now, the pain with a kidney stone happens acutely and severe. So the goal is pain control and hydration with kidney stones for EMS. But now I want to talk about different types of stones, okay? Because so you may see these. Now, if a patient has gout. You can get a uric acid stone, okay? So gout has to do with uric acid levels, okay? Gout is a risk factor of getting a kidney stone, all right? Now I want to talk about UTIs and recent catheterizations for kidney stones. Now what this means, what this means is if you are someone who is chronically getting UTIs or chronically needing urinary catheterization, like a urinary catheter put in place, you can get a certain type of stone called a stervite stone, right? So let's say someone has had a recent UTI and now they present kidney stone-like, could be that type. Now that, that's where we're at. Now here's UTIs. So UTIs either affect the lower or the upper part of the urinary tract. We know the upper part is our kidney, the lower part would be prostate, would be the bladder, would be the, the urethra, okay? Now how do they present? Well they present, could be altered mental, okay? Could be a fever, so it could be hot skin. The other thing that we wanna look at too with UTI is a foul odor uh, of their urine. So a not very good smelling urine a burning sensation or a pain when they use the bathroom. Again, it could be restless, altered mental, okay? We see this very commonly in nursing home patients, right? Or patients that are in a community where there's infection. This is the biggest thing with UTIs and kidney stones. I just wanna make sure you're aware of it as we're covering this section. Renal failure and what is hemodialysis? So renal failure can either be acute or chronic. If we have somebody with acute renal failure, that is someone who's lost a tremendous amount of their production. So let's talk about this. Now, there's three main pathways to renal failure. The first pathway that we have can be blood flow is blocked 
going to the kidney itself. Okay, that's called pre-renal failure. Now, if the kidney itself is damaged, like in a trauma situation, that would be renal failure due to the kidney itself being damaged because it can't work, okay? Now, the third piece would be a blockage of the urinary pathways that we talked about earlier that would cause renal failure. Now, when I say renal failure, what do I really mean? What I mean is we have an electrolyte imbalance in the body and we have toxic substances in the body that should not be there. So it causes the entire body to be unregulated, thus causing the patient to have a bad outcome okay, if they don't get treated. Now, prior to the 1960s, dialysis wasn't even around. Patients with acute or chronic renal failure, they just passed away, unfortunately. But now we have dialysis, okay? So how do we fix renal failure? Well, the patient, obviously, we need to regulate their electrolytes, and we need to get rid of the toxic waste. If there's a blockage, we need, to, we need to fix it. If there's something wrong with the kidney, we need to fix that. So here it is. Now, dialysis is used, it could be in an emergency situation, it could be for acute, but that, when we think about dialysis, it's a chronic thing. With chronic renal failure patients, uh, what we have to do is they have to go to dialysis for about two or three hours, two or three times per week. And if you do transports, you'll be taking those patients and you'll be doing dialysis here, okay? Now, what happens there is they'll have a shunt, okay? It's usually in their arm. Uh, a shunt where that shunt will be connected to the actual dialysis machine where what's going to happen is they're going to regulate their electrolytes and they're going to get rid of all the toxic substances. Essentially, if you kind of think about it, purifying and, and getting everything back to where it should be. So this is dialysis and renal failure. Remember, there's three pathways. I want to briefly go through some of these male disorders on the male reproductive side. Now, these could be injuries, these could be inflammations, these could be infections. But I want to talk about them because you're going to hear these buzzwords and you got to know what this is. You can't have no idea. Okay. So we're going to talk about males first, then females second, and we'll do the same list. Okay. Like I did here. So first we have testicular torsion. So what that is, the most common cause of scrotal pain is actually testicular torsion. Now, that, this can result in a loss of blood. Now, let me explain. What happens is one of the, tes the testicles gets turned in a way. It gets, it's, we're going to talk later about the torsion for uh, females. Now, for males, that test, can get uh, actually moved in a certain way. When it gets moved in that certain way, what can happen, it gets turned. It basically shuts off the blood flow of that testicle. So you need emergency surgery to get that fixed. So how does that happen? It could happen, move randomly during puberty, but most commonly the strenuous physical activity or athletic events. Um, testicular cancer, I'm just bringing it up because it is rare, but it most commonly happens in 15 to 30 year olds. Okay, 15, to, I'm sorry, 15 to 35, 15 to 40, usually the range. Now, without even saying this, okay, you can just see it here, okay? We have an itis in the, pro in the prostate. We know it's an inflammation of the prostate, but so we talked uh, in another video about UTIs, okay? So this is bacteria infection of the prostate itself. 
So the inflammation of the prostate due to a bacterial infection is most common. It can present like a UTI, but it ends up being the prostate. So it, there could be burning um, urination. They could have some lower back pain, some rectal pain, because it's, it's back there in that, in that realm. Then also here, uh, pain on urination. Okay, so those are the, those are the big players here with an inflamed uh, prostate. Now finally here, we have uh, priapism. So what priapism is, it's idiopathic, meaning it has nothing, the erection has nothing to do with being turned on by sex. What it has to do with is a, something physical going on in the body that's causing it. So it's out of your control. So priapism, it's prolonged erection, you know, hours, they talk about, you know, over three, four hours long. And what this is, is you have the blood basically staying in the penis, right? And it won't get out. It stays in there. So here's why it happens. Impotence, drugs, meaning you're using drugs to gain erection. Sickle cell disease and spinal trauma could be some of the, the idiopathic reasons why this happens, okay? So there's something to keep in mind. These are the buzzwords for male disorders. Next, we're going to do female. Here we go. So now I want to go over the female disorders. We're talking about the reproductive side. Now, I'm going to start from the top here. Okay, now it's in the corner, but don't think it's not important. This is pelvic inflammatory disease. Now, pelvic inflammatory disease is one of the most common reasons for abdominal pain in women of childbearing age, okay? Now, what this is, is an inflammation. It could be a bacteria, that's pretty common, but it could be all different types of uh, substances um, that cause an, this infection. Now, with PID, if someone has chlamydia or gonorrhea as an STD, this could be what's causing the PID, okay? Sometimes asymptomatic, sometimes it's symptomatic, and it's moderate to severe abdominal pain. But this is something that I didn't want to touch on, it's called PID, pelvic inflammatory disease, it infects all of the main players, uterus, fallopian tubes, all the main players inside the female reproductive side, okay? Now, middle schmerz, what does that mean? All that means is abdominal pain mid-cycle. That's all. Okay. Middle sounds like the middle. So mid-cycle is the way I remember it. Okay. And ovarian cysts. And here's a big one. There can be a torsion of, an ovar uh, of the ovary due to a cyst. Okay. It also could be that the cyst ruptures the ovary. There can be a torsion of the ovary. That, that's one thing in itself. There can be a cyst on the ovary that ruptures. Okay, these are two main pathways. But they present very much the same. Abdominal pain, back with back pain, nausea, vomiting, and they might even get like a weakness or dizziness. Okay. It sounds almost like a, a heart attack almost, right? For a female. Oh, I'm no, I'm weak, I'm dizzy, I have abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, right? But something to think about here, ovarian cyst. Here's the big problem. The big problem is blood can spill if it ruptures into your peritoneum and then you become septic, right? So that's the big issue, like anything that would rupture in, in, your, in your abdominal area. 
Now, here's the big thing. TIS versus SIS. Okay, so an osis and an itis. Okay, let's start with the itis here. This is infection of the uridine lining. There's usually a foul or bloody discharge. You can see here, there's also fever abdominal pain. Now, endometriosis. Very interesting. Hang with me. This is where endometrial tissue is found outside the uterus. So the tissue that, that is normally found in the uterus is found somewhere else, usually in the pelvis or the abdomen, but it could be in anywhere, okay? And that tissue actually bleeds on command with the cycle, okay? That is endometriosis. Amenorrhea. Amenorrhea all means, remember A in medicine means there's nothing going on. Amenorrhea, talking about the menstrual cycle, there's no menstrual cycle, okay? That's amenorrhea. So here are some of the buzzwords you're gonna hear with female disorders. Now you know them. You might need to watch this again. It's your first time ever hearing these words, but now you got them down. Good job.